This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 520 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kevin Malahai. Now, Kevin is a former athlete, martial artist, and strength and conditioning coach working with the military. So we discuss a host of topics from mentorship, coaching the young athlete, weight cuts, injury rehab, and so much more. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kevin Malahai. Enjoy. Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I firstly want to thank you as well because you reached out and uh, connected me with um, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Burgess as well, who was on prior. So I guess the very first question is, how did you even come across the podcast and or the social media side? 
Yeah, actually, uh, so uh, I think it was the end of December of last year. Uh, it was the first time that I had gotten the opportunity to go back to Oklahoma since all of the COVID stuff had hit. And so I was trying to, unfortunately, the way the flights were panned out, there's been quite a shift in the expectation for what you get with layovers and things like that right now. And so I literally just started scouring through every podcast, anything that I was seeing people sharing. And uh, to my recollection, I had found uh, the guys O2X and I'd listened to them. And then uh, I don't even recall if they had just referenced having spoken with you at one point in time. And so I, I just kind of popped around from different ones and then I saw yours and I was like, there's an extensive amount of persons that I've uh, come to either listen to their versions of podcasts. I've heard some of their stories. I follow them on social media. And so I just started working my way through yours at that point. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. But I appreciate it as well because you reached out and connected me with Steve like, you know, off the bat. So that was another great conversation. It's going to be good because he's within the military and then you're external working with the military so those two kind of cross sections i think it'll be a, a kind of interesting perspective so where on planet earth are we finding you today uh so i'm in edmonton alberta so the city of festivals prior to covid <laughs> we are in the uh we're supposed to be the horse capital of the world and the lightning capital of the world so in theory we should be the cooked horse capital of the world but I, haven't, <laughs> but I haven't seen any yet. Um, all right. Well, then I love to start, as you know, at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, I spent uh, pretty much my entire life there in some capacity. I always, uh, every time I've moved away, I've found a way to move back in some way, shape or form, with the exception of being here in uh, Alberta. Uh, I was born and raised a uh, pretty stable household. I always kind of jokingly say I was blessed to have a very boring upbringing in that sense. Uh, aside from the fact that uh, early on in my life, my dad was uh, originally a geologist and he lost his job when there was a bust in the oil industry in the late 80s. Um, so I was, a, I was a younger child at that point. I think I was only three or four when that happened. Uh, he ended up going back to school. And uh, so he spent a lot of my younger years uh, actually going back to school. He ended up becoming a pathologist. Uh, so he went through the whole medical school process while I was alive. Uh, my mother was a French teacher. And uh, during that time, uh, we were living off that one income, which, as I'm sure somebody else has probably mentioned uh, before me on this podcast, teachers in the States don't make great incomes. Uh, so she went back to school and became a counselor. So then at that point, both of them were in school. So I'm the youngest of three boys. So my two brothers and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents actually growing up. Um, so I spent an immense amount of time either with my grandmother. She was a, a tailor. She worked out of her home. So she lived in a, a, a poor neighborhood that served what is one of the old money rich parts of Oklahoma City proper. And uh, she would sew dresses for their proms and things like that. So I spent a lot of time with her actually helping her like count her money and find push pins that had gotten lost in the carpet. Or uh, my grandfather sold insurance uh, while he was in the city after he had left his farm life. And uh, so I would actually go on sales calls with him periodically and meet people at restaurants and things like that. And I would just ride uh, shotgun with him. So uh, that was a lot of my upbringing. Um, 
but again, pretty aside from some of those dynamics there, uh, it was a, a pretty normal, like kind of what you would hope for uneventful uh, upbringing in that sense. With your dad being a pathologist, and I'm assuming he was the person that was uh, analyzing, you know, whatever diseased, um, you know, vessels or organs were brought to him, did that give him and or you a lens on or a healthy lifestyle, um, whether nutrition, exercise, with him being around disease and, and seeing the impact of maybe obesity and cancers and some of the other things that he was introduced to every day? Yeah, you'd think that. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> no, he, he is a relatively healthy guy. Uh, I would say realistically, if it did anything, it made him a bit of a germaphobe. Uh, my my dad is a very sciencey guy. I, I have my grandfather's personality. Me being chatty is nothing to do with my father. He tends to be very reserved. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, I think the reason he had opted for pathology other than the fact that he was fascinated by it was the fact that it has no patient interaction. Um, you just got to sit behind a microscope. Um, but he is, he's, uh, my dad is a very devout to the day that I can remember. He's a devout Baptist. Um, so he doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. Uh, my parents met in the Baptist student union at the university. I mean, it's like, we always joked about like what an expectation to try to live up to. It was like, you know, my brothers and I were pretty normal kind of run of the mill kids. We liked to party in high school and stuff like that. My parents are, oh, yeah, we met at the Baptist Student Union, and then we got married, and we had kids, and we're like, oh, great. You know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I would say uh, the healthy lifestyle thing, I would say if I took that from anyone in my family specifically is probably my grandfather, and I didn't realize it till probably later on in my life. Uh, as I mentioned, he did sell insurance, but for the better part of his life, he had actually – uh, lived on and worked on farms up in uh, Beaver County, Oklahoma, which is the Panhandle, which literally has a sign when you drive into the county that says no man's land on it. It's pretty desolate. Um, but he was, uh, I don't have his shape at all. I have my dad's shape. So thanks, dad. Uh, he was about a six foot two tall guy, broad shoulders, liked to swing an ax and do yard work. And uh, the one memory that I have of him from a health perspective is my grandmother, and she was just being super sweet, tried to give him a bowl of ice cream after dinner with two scoops of ice cream instead of one. And he said, are you trying to make me fat? So um, <laughs> he, was, he was pretty, for somebody that was very old school, he was pretty strict with making sure that he only ate uh, what he considered to be the healthiest things. He ate like oatmeal with a little bit of cinnamon in it for breakfast. I mean, black coffee. So he was always, uh, despite not having any real experience or education in it, he was always trying to stick to things that he knew to be his healthier options. And I think a little bit of that just from uh, kind of an osmosis property kind of rubbed off on me. Um, so, but yeah, it's, I would say that was probably more the influence in my being involved on doing things in the health related spectrum. Interesting. Yeah. I've always wondered that because you see a lot of um, you know, doctors and nurses that are, you know, morbidly obese. And that's not a, a criticism as far as, um, you know, oh, they should they should get hold of their health. It's I think it's a, a byproduct of a lot of the shifts that they work, a lot of the misinformation. But you would think that, you know, for example, every firefighter wear their seatbelt because we see what happens when people don't. You know what I mean? But it's, it's funny how sometimes there isn't that direct relationship. Even though we're preaching it to everyone else, there's a sense of hypocrisy because we're not actually living it ourselves. Right. Yeah. And my father, he does. I will say this. He is relatively healthy. He likes to run. 
Um, he's a uh, he's a twin. His twin brother was uh, athletic to the point where I think, if I'm correct, I think he was scholarship. I know he did some university level athletics, track and field, and evidently he held some high jump state record for quite some time. My dad did cross country, and to this day, he'll still run. You know, I mean, what he's 72 now. So he and he still goes out and runs around Lake Hefner in Oklahoma City and things like that. So, I mean, he does take very good care of himself. But uh, and maybe it did have an influence on me, but it's not something that resonates in my mind when I think about kind of what led me down the path that I went on. Now, with Oklahoma City, I had a, a friend of mine, Chris Field, was um, one of the firefighters that responded to the bombing. Um, another one of the, the guests was a counselor that, at that event. Um, did that event permeate through your family in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, so my dad was actually in residency during that. So he was at OU Health and Sciences, and that building um, is, without getting into the, the weeds of the details of like streets and things like that, it's in relative proximity to where the uh, Murrah building was. Um, and the stories that he told me is that I believe the building, the actual structure they were in within OU Health and Sciences uh, I guess it would have been the east. No, I'm sorry. It would have been the west side facing window. Some of them were actually blown out of the side of the building. Um, I don't remember the terminology. I want to say it was like a code black or something. And he said when it first happened, they were all kind of uh, stunned in the sense that they were like, I don't know if I actually heard what I just heard. And uh, yeah, he actually he has a few collectible things. He actually gave me a T-shirt that he had gotten from an FBI uh, agent where they'd done some exchanges with like patches and shirts and pins and things. Um, but he, to my understanding was predominantly doing triage at the site as a, as a resident. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's huge. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I talk about this almost every single time when you ask someone about their early life and all the tangents, I mean, you know, every single human being walking has an amazing story. And I'm sure most people in the lab don't realize that your dad you know, was once standing in the middle of a, you know, terrorist, um, you know, ground zero, as it were, triaging patients. Yeah, and I was I was pretty young at that point. I can give you a pretty intimate understanding of it. It did, surprisingly, considering how young I was uh, at the time, it did have a pretty significant impact. I was in the fourth grade at that time. I We had just moved uh, from my older school to the new school that I was in at the time because my family had moved out of the old neighborhood we were in. And our entire, uh, the Putnam City School District that I was involved in, I went to James L. Dennis Elementary School. Our elementary school was on a field trip uh, to uh, go to, uh, I can't even remember what the performance was, but it was something that was being done uh, down at the amphitheater. And the amphitheater is not far from where the Murrow building is. And so we were all on school buses headed down that morning. Uh, I believe that it was supposed to take place around 9.30 or 10 a.m. So not long after the Murrah building went off because 9.01, I believe, was or 9.02 was the time of the bombing going off. And I remember distinctively there was people that had already made it downtown. Uh, I don't believe they were there when the bomb had gone off, but they had made it downtown for the chaos that had ensued uh, as a result of the, the attack, and they were basically just screaming through those crappy little box radios that you have in your standard school bus about turn your buses around, turn your buses around. And uh, we could hear kind of the noise and the, and the things that were going on in the background, but couldn't really make any sense of it. And once we got back, uh, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Blue, had to uh, stand up in front of us and basically told us, 
you know, this is in, in very like gentle terms, right? So we're a young population of people she's having to deliver this type of information to. Um, but just like this is something that's very significant. Uh, you, you know, if, uh, if your parents call and they want you out of class, just know that we'll let you leave the class. You know, we're going to keep you here to keep you safe. It was kind of a weird environment. And there was, I don't have anyone specifically that was like a close friend or anything, um, that at least that I'm aware of that had a family member that, uh, died in the, in the blast or anything like that. But quite a few people and people that I made friends with later on, particularly uh, guys in law enforcement that were involved with it in some capacity. And so, yeah, I don't really think there's anybody that was alive during the time of that uh, and lived in Oklahoma city that didn't have some type of connection to it in some way, shape or form. But yeah, it was a, it, it doesn't strike me as a traumatic event from a standpoint of like my personal experience. Cause I, I just don't think I was old enough to really comprehend it at that time. Um, but there was definitely connections to it. There's definitely memories associated with it and things of that nature. And then what about your mom being a counselor? Did she ever have any of the people that were affected by that walk into her office? I, I undoubtedly so. I do know that there was a few people in the district. Uh, I actually, uh, the, there was an individual. I didn't know them closely. They weren't kind of in my little pocket of friends. Um, but there was a kind of a, uh, what I'll consider to be like a historic imagery that went on during that time. There was an individual that was like in a brown suit. I can't remember the guy's name to save my life, but he was stranded on one of the uh, upper floors and he was rescued um, by the fire department. But he was kind of standing at the edge, like trying to wave people down to help him. And that was a uh, either the uncle or father of one of the people at the school I went to. Um, so knowing that there was somebody in close proximity at that time that had people that were that directly involved. Uh, she was a counselor at the high school that my elementary school funneled into. So undoubtedly there was people that went through that, whether or not she had the opportunity to speak to it. I don't know that I've ever had that conversation with her. Um, I don't recall her ever saying it, but she was also pretty good about kind of keeping things behind closed doors with the students she worked with. She's very passionate about being a counselor. So um, that would probably be something she'll, you know, we'll have probably on the tail end of us talking uh, <laughs> conversation about if it's something she ever came across, but uh, not to my recollection, no. Right. Okay. Well, then back to your kind of through line. You ended up obviously becoming an, uh, a high-level athlete, a coach. So what sports were you playing during the school ages? Yeah. So I kind of did a, a, a shotgun blast of all the things. I, I, I was very indecisive about what I wanted to do uh, to a degree. Um, so I, you know, my, both my brothers played baseball, so I wanted to play baseball. Well, I didn't really like baseball that much. I like it from a sports perspective, but I just didn't really enjoy the pace of it, I think, more than anything. I, I didn't uh, keep my interest. Um I've always been involved in martial arts in some capacity. Uh, I've just been, uh, you know, like I was a Ninja Turtles kid. Like I, you know, like it, anything that had to do with anything ninja martial arts, I was just super obsessed with it from an early age. And so uh, the catch being is that with sports early on, the only sports that I could actually participate in until I was really at school age were things that were available free through like the Y and stuff like that because both of my parents had gone back to school so we didn't have a lot of money. 
And, uh, and so that was a big part of what dictated it too. So sports like football, I couldn't play that until I was, uh, in school and it was available because we couldn't afford the pads and the helmet and all the things like that. Um, and that's actually weirdly enough, kind of how I got into doing some wrestling was that, uh, when we did move into the new neighborhood that we moved into when I was in that fourth grade age, so what, nine, 10 ish, um, my next door neighbors, the night boys, all of them were like decorated wrestlers. And uh, our backyards were open. There was no fence line between us. And uh, Jake, the youngest, was, I think, a year or two older than me. And I would go over there and play with him. Well, when you play with wrestling kids, you're going to wrestle. Like, that's just part of the deal, right? Like, it comes as part of the package. And so I just started wrestling with them. And then eventually, um, coincidentally, their mother, Susie Knight, she was uh, working within the district as well. And she knew my mother. And she just offered to take me one time. So I ended up going to wrestling with them and all I had to pay for was the probably at that time, 10 or $15 wrestling shoes. And they gave you a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt and you wear community headgear, which is gross, but you wear community <laughs> headgear <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that was it, you know? So I got involved with that, uh, pretty early on as well. And I kind of flowed in and out of that with playing football. Cause I had this weird, um, kind of, I wanted to be big for football, but they want me to be small for wrestling. And it was this back and forth thing that I kind of struggled with, struggled with in quotes, um, you know, being a younger kid as to what I really wanted to do. Uh, I would play like, you know, free church league basketball. I'm five, nine and I don't jump well. So that's not really my forte, but I, I, you know, put a lot of effort into it. I think I fouled out of every game I was in. Um, so, you know, I, I was just kind of all over the place, but really where I centered back in was football was good for me. Uh, it really, uh, kept me engaged and, uh, and I kind of floated all over. I got really heavy for a bit because I wanted to play fullback and linebacker. And the age that I was at was when the spread offense was becoming super popular and we had a lot of fast kids out on the end. They're like, yeah, we don't need a fullback. So I was like, trying to find my place on the team. And I got all the way up to 230 pounds at five, nine. And, uh, I played center and nose guard. And, uh, and then I decided that's not how I want to live my life. I was super uncomfortable and insecure, which is actually something that led me into doing more, uh, like weightlifting and training in the gym later down the road. Uh, and so I was like, I don't want to be that guy. So I got all the way back down to what was kind of my normal weight when I was about a hundred and, 6,570 pounds and uh, kept doing the wrestling and, and things like that and played football, 6A Oklahoma football. I was a nose guard at about 170 pounds. So that was a, a challenge in and of itself, but I made it work somehow. So uh, yeah, I was, but I was all over the board. Uh, martial arts, grappling, stuff like that. That was really the only thing that I ever came back to each successive time. Now, with that, with the you know, the coaching lens that you have now, what is your perspective on, especially in the football, um, football and baseball? But so, so you have either you know one or two things: the overuse element of of children drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling a single sport, and also um, the weight cutting. Let's say, for example, in 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 wrestling, where we're going underweight, but also the the kind of linebacker mentality where we're trying to get these kids as fat as possible from what I'm seeing. Oh, it's great. You're going to be, you know, defensive, whatever. Um, that lens of winning 
a school season versus the responsibility of that child's actual health? Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird area to be in, right? So one of my little side jobs I did for a bit was I actually uh, went back and uh, adjunct coach wrestling and football at the middle school that I went through, um, which was kind of fun because it was kind of fun to be full circle, right? Um, and But it, it's, a, it's a weird element. So it's like it's one of the conversations I've had in the past is that a lot of the athletes that end up being good collegiate athletes or even professional athletes – uh, we do see that they have a long kind of distinguished history within that sport, but the number of people that actually make it to that level is very, very small. So if you put a hundred kids into baseball from the time that they're three to the time that they're going to university, yeah, the kid that makes it all the way to university probably isn't that pot of kids, but the other 99 that have, you know, you know, had surgery on their shoulder already because they've thrown a million pitches or whatever that looks like they're just going to have shoulder injuries for the rest of their life. So it's, you're kind of taking a gamble as to whether or not it's actually going to subsequently benefit your kid. And it's almost like a moral ethical dilemma at that point, right? Like, are you vicariously living through your child or are you supporting their dreams? You know, and even if you're supporting their dreams, is it your job as a parent to step in and say, I need to make sure that you're doing what's best for you in the long run, or are you stomping on their dreams by doing that? Right? So, It's just, it's such a touchy subject. What I don't appreciate when I looked at it from a coaching perspective in is when there's a kid that obviously doesn't enjoy what they're doing, right? I think that's the biggest catch. And then aside from that, I think the best thing that you can realistically do is, is just having a better understanding. And I think that research is always kind of evolving when we look at like football and concussions, for instance, like just putting those appropriate measures in place to say that, hey, maybe, you know what, your kids don't necessarily need to practice full pads and helmets five days a week before they play games or whatever that looks like. And, and I don't know that I have an answer for it to be all, like beyond what I've already said other than I just – I well, I'll say it this way. Teaching your kids that once they start something, they need to finish it, I completely agree with, Right. And I think it's something that was a pitfall for me as a kid that my parents were too understanding in some capacities, right? You know, like, oh, you don't enjoy this? Well, we'll just shut it down. I do believe in the idea that, like, if your child starts their football season, see the season through. If you don't like it at the end of the season, then we'll take you out. But what I don't like is the kid that doesn't want to be in football from the get-go and their parents make them play, right? Like, and, and that's that's when I kind of see it as, like, you're not doing your kid a favor. So when you get into these repetitive strain injuries and things like that, if you're the one that's forcing your kid to do that and they subsequently have these injuries that hinder their ability to live their fullest quality of life down the road, yeah, you're kind of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's no in between on that. So that's kind of where I draw the line. I think the best thing that we can do just as a community from a fitness perspective is just to continue to support the research because I would say the biggest uh, line in the sand that I've found that's that's something that's hard to overcome a lot of times is that you get the practitioner, the coaches, the player that becomes the coach and whomever, and then they view the researcher as, you know, the, the pencil pusher. And so this guy, the practitioner, by the researcher, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's uneducated. He's whatever. And then the, the practitioner is this guy's never been there. He's never done that. 
and we're having a hard time merging those two things together. I think it's just a lot of pride and, and if we can just get a better marriage between those two things, particularly at those earlier ages, I think that's going to be the best answer to that. How you overcome that, your guess is as good as mine. Because it's really hard to convince the guy that played nothing but high school football that now has been empowered to run his little league football team that's on a winning streak that maybe they shouldn't practice so much. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty complex issue for sure. Yeah, what's interesting from from coming from England to America, almost immediately I met these, you know, men that were in their late twenties, early thirties, and you know, overweight, you know, in pain on meds, and and every single time it was an Uncle Rico story. Oh man, I was a high school this, so you know, I was the linebacker, I was the star, whatever, and. Yeah, I think that we have this like crazy elite level of sports in high school and if you make it to college, collegiate level, but there's no emphasis on longevity. So then there's a, everyone hits a brick wall. When you go to, I'm sure it's a, a lot of European countries, but in England, for example, you play football, soccer at school or whatever your sport is, or rugby, and then you graduate and you keep playing your sport. And you, you see overall, I'm sure it's worse now, but you know, when I was younger, like people just stayed fit. They stayed healthy. They were still able to play, but we were never at, we weren't like in the gym for football. You know, it was still just out there in the rain doing drills and playing games. So seeing that, I think that, you know, it's amazing the level that we get some of these kids to. But again, we have to ask ourselves at what cost? No, in my opinion, we shouldn't have a bucket load of 18-year-olds that have already had ACL, MCL. I mean, all these. I mean, you're at your prime. If you're getting hurt then, God, God help you when you're my age. <laughs> you're going to be an arthritic, you know, cripple by that point. So I, I just find it as an interesting dialogue. And I always like to ask the coaches because, you know, as you said, it's an ethical thing. Where is that line between a truly gifted athlete that you're given the tools to reach the pinnacle of their sport and the other 99% of kids that were just given a bunch of injuries that may end up with them as a morbidly obese, obese COVID patient in the year 2020. Yeah, and I think there's you know there's lots of layers to it too, right? You can look at it from different perspectives. I think one of the things that we typically overlook is, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I will be on the corner of the mat, cornering my wrestler with veins popping out of my face when I'm coaching them. I, I love it. I love the competition. I love everything that it, that it harnesses from an internal development uh, perspective from all the way to the skin level. Like not only are we developing your physicality, we're conditioning your mind. You know, like I love everything about the idea of competitive sport and what it teaches people. Um, but at the end of the day, you also have to take into consideration, as you mentioned, the sustainability part. And I think it's important for people to understand. And when I say people, usually the parents, because those are usually the crazy people in the stands. But I think it's important to understand that it's okay not to be that level. Like you can just be the person that enjoys it. And I know that's a super sappy, non-competitive mindset. But the reality is, is like when we we go into those, you know, competitive environments, I'll give you a perfect example. I can't remember the kid's name. There was a kid that they shared on ESPN. He's going to be a freshman in high school. He's like 6'5 and 260 pounds, and he's taking passes as a tight end. I'm sorry. If you're my size, you can work real hard. 
You're not going to take his spot. You know, like, and that's okay. It's okay if you don't do that. Still go out and play. Still try hard. Still develop. Still enjoy yourself. But it's okay that you're not going to ever be that kid, you know, like, uh, and so that's a unfortunate conversation that I've had to have with a few parents to try to get them not to, you know, keel over and stroke in the, in the bleachers because we're not playing their kid right now, you know? And so it, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a really complex issue. And like talking about like weight cuts and things like that, it, it's, that's so deeply ingrained in the culture that you can, the, the easiest way I can say it is you can change the immediate surroundings you can change. Never ex never expect to change people outside of your immediate contact because it's just such a large pro. So you have to, you have to get buy-in from just that one person and then they have to get buy-in from their respective community and their respective community. If you try to just go out and sit in a seminar room full of coaches that have taught wrestlers, you know, how to wrestle for the last 30 years and you say your kid shouldn't wait cut, you're going to get a lot of eye rolls and people probably leave the room. But if you can have that one-on-one -on -one interface with that one individual and, and give them, you know, good, objective, logical reasons as to why this is probably not in the best interest, you may be able to have an impact there. And I think that's a, a that's like the, the social media thing, right? I'm trying to reach everybody. I'm trying to change the world by influencing everybody at the same time. It's usually not a good approach. No, you end up in oh. some really shitty boxing match and make millions. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, <laughs> with that, speaking of combat sports, um, years ago when I used to compete in taekwondo, we would we would get on the scale just a couple of hours before we'd fight. And you know, now you look at weight cuts, and it's a day or two before. What's your perception of just weighing the damn athletes the morning or the afternoon of the fight so you can't get this crazy level of dehydration and, you know, electrolyte imbalance that causes some of the issues that we're seeing? Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny you talk about that. So one of my little side – I've got lots of little side gigs that I do. One of my little side gigs is I'm actually uh, uh, the head of a subcommittee with the Edmonton Combative Sports Commission. And the subcommittee that I'm overseeing right now has a lot to do with fighter safety and policy. Uh, so that's actually a primary topic of discussion as to what, what do we want to allow. Now, the unfortunate side of, of that whole thing is that we're also having to – we're not only speaking on behalf of the fighter from a safety perspective and what we want to do, but we also have to meet in the middle with the organizations. We can't just turn every organization away because then what do the fighters do? They just disappear, Right. And that's not good for the people. So we're, we want to make sure that we represent our community well, too. So we have to find those what makes sense for everybody type of uh, standards. Um, but I do agree that I don't see why there would be an issue with doing that. And one of the things that I proposed, and I, I don't even think it's necessarily an original idea of mine. For sure, I've heard this somewhere else, but I have proposed is doing subsequent weigh-ins. So doing your initial weigh-in the day before. And then making sure that there's no standard deviation uh, greater than five pounds, whatever, between the two athletes. So that that way, regardless of what their contracted fight weight was, they're not getting a clear, distinct advantage over their opponent because they put on 20 pounds in the last 24 hours and their opponent put on three. Um, so then at that point, yeah, you guys both came at the same weight. Yeah. You're both within the same weight now, 
right? So did you really gain an advantage by cutting weight? And so that was kind of a thought process into how to, to potentially navigate that, what that looks like in practice, don't know, right? Um, but that was just a way to, to think of maybe how to mitigate that. I do know that in some of the little judo tournaments and things that I've done, we weighed in in our gi, stepped on the scale, went out on the mat, shake hands, hajime, start, right? So, you know, I don't know why that wouldn't necessarily be something that could be done ringside for a fight, other than the fact that if they miss weight, you're in a bit of a predicament there. So I don't know what that timeline looks like that's optimal for that, but I definitely think that with the amount of times that we've seen, as a matter of fact, one of the one of my good friends that's fighting in the UFC right now, Julia Vila, she, uh, one of her opponents was the uh, individual that collapsed on stage. Oh, really? You know, yeah. So, I mean, that was, I think that's been last year now, but she had a bad weight cut. It didn't work. They ended up subsequently having a fight later on down the road scheduled for them. Um, but yeah, she had a bad weight cut and then she got up on the scale and my guess is just having been around a lot of weight cuts, she probably locked her legs out while she was up there and, and got lightheaded and then they had to cancel the fight, you know? And so if that, if I could say in confidence that I've only seen that ever happen one time in my life, I think I would think differently about it, but I've seen it particularly in smaller arenas. You know, I've had guys that I've worked with that were fighting and, their guy came in, he was five pounds over and it's Oklahoma heat in the middle of the summer. It's a hundred plus degrees outside. And the guy throws on the blue jeans that he came in on, grabs a jacket out of his car, starts running up and down the street to try to make weight. You know, like at that point, I don't, I, you know, like those are the things that I know happen behind closed doors. And, and that's where I want to draw the line. If they're working with somebody that really, you know, has the genuine understanding and oversight into how to do that safely, Maybe we just put a limit on what the extreme can be from day one to day two. But I know for a fact, particularly at the lower level, that's not how those things are happening. And that's why I tend to be so apprehensive, particularly when you're doing it with like kids that are going to wrestle at junior high and high school levels. I uh, I used to train at Shootbox when they had a gym in LA for a little bit. And uh, Anthony Johnson was not known then. Obviously, he's very well known now. And uh, I think he walked around probably at, what, 220? He fought at 170. And I remember training with him, and he was just, he was a ghost. You know, he was just absolutely exhausted. So you talk about missing weight. I almost think you would have less chance of missing weight if you just weighed in the day off because there wouldn't be that crazy chasing that, you know, whatever, 155, whatever you're going to from where you were. You get on scales in the changing room. You're like, I'm good. And then you walk out and you weigh in officially. So I, to me, it almost seems like it would help with the miss weights that we see all the time. Yeah. And the other thing that makes me uncomfortable with it, just from the perspective that I've had being involved in the organization, it's not always the fighter that wants to cut those weights. I know I've had, I'm going to leave people unnamed because I don't know if this causes conflict of interest for people, but fighters that I've worked with and uh, them having a management company call them and say, Hey, I know you fight at this weight. Do you think you can make this weight instead? And, you know, so in disparities of 15, 20 pounds or more. And in some cases, not even with any relative amount of notice, three, five, six weeks would be a comfortable amount of time. I'm talking people that, you know, are cutting from their normal weight to what their expected weight is. Hey, let's shave 15 pounds off of that. And you got two weeks, you know, so as a low level fighter, the unfortunate aspect of that is you're always on call. And if you don't 
take some of those fights, there's a good chance you don't get another phone call. So it, there's just with the prevalence of the sport being so uh, so big now in in just sports in general. I mean, the fact that it's getting these giant pay per view events and it's on ESPN and and all those things, the attractiveness of it for more athletes to come into the equation is obviously quite a bit more than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. That you're not the only guy in your city that's training anymore. There's a hundred guys that are ready to take your spot. So like, if you shut down your big opportunity, even if it's on two weeks notice or 10 days notice or a day's notice or whatever that looks like, they'll just call somebody else. And that's, that's the unfortunate side of that for them. So that's one of those things where it's like, ultimately the organizations would have to make that decision for it really to make a change that would stick, I feel like. And I don't see how it would be to any benefit for them as the organization from a money standpoint to, to do that. And that's why I don't think it would change anytime soon. But when we get like local level with kids and stuff like that, we can change that stuff. And maybe that's a cultural shift that we can have a better impact to where maybe they just go into those weight classes without the weight. Cause the organization isn't telling them they have to cut weight. They're just saying, this is your contracted weight. So it, I, I don't know where that has to occur, that it's upstream enough that it actually makes the impact that it needs to make. But I feel like even if you make that rule, some guy's going to be like, you know what I should do? <laughs> and it'll come back. So, um, yeah, you, you would have to be almost to the point of weighing them in as they walked into the cage for that to really change, I think. Yeah. Yeah, only you hit on a point too. It's sad, but, you know, we see this in – in the first responder professions as well, you know, it becomes about the budget or the mighty dollar rather than the health of the athlete or the tactical athlete, which is, you know, it's a shame that that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you put anything for profit, there will be a, a shift in the mindset uh, at some level. And, you know, profit's good. It pays the fighters, but then they also become part of the system in the sense that they have to play the game. And so, and yeah, I don't, I don't see how there would ever be a way around that being a thing where it would benefit both parties. Um, I'm not that business savvy, so I don't have a solution for it either, but uh, it's just definitely kind of having been on the ground level with my athletes when they were getting those types of calls and stuff like that. I, I, I know that it happens. You just basically nod your head and say, yep, we'll make it work and you move forward. So, Well, while we're on, you know, competition for a second before we move forward, what is your, what have you seen as far as the level of contact in the striking areas? Because again, I talked about shootbox. By far the closest thing I've ever been to a real life fight club, even though I just spoke about it. I just broke rule one. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, it was. It was. I had the shit kicked out of me, nose broken, ear perforated, you know, come to, to the fire station with black eyes. And, you know, I mean, when I think back now, the level of contact every single class, I had headaches and neck issues and all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, I'm hearing more and more. I had Greg, Greg Jackson on and some other, other coaches. Um, that again, less is more. It's kind of like we talked about before and that now there's a realization. Um, I think Israel Asando was, was quoted as not doing any sparring at all before one of his fights. What are you seeing with that? The old school, you know, slugfest in the gym versus what's going on in 2021? Yeah, uh, we used to joke and say that, uh, you know, unpopular opinion, 
the uh, never back down is a more realistic portrayal of what getting ready for a fight is than Rocky Four, because he didn't spar for the entire thing, right? He worked out in his you know respective farm or whatever it was that they had given to him, and he's running through the snow, he's out running cars and doing tricep extensions with rocks and stuff like that, right? But we kind of joked about like that's a more accurate portrayal. Um, because most training scenarios you would expect like kind of the standard battery of we're going to do, you know, grappling on Monday. We're going to do striking on Tuesday. We're going to do some light technical rounds on Wednesday and then re rinse and repeat and Saturday. We're going to go shark take rounds and you're going to get in there and you're going to fight. Right. And that's, I know that's not necessarily a standard formula across the board for everybody, but kind of in the area that I was in, that was pretty, pretty typical at most facilities. There were some small variations in there, but there was something along those lines. Like you have more or less a technical grappling session a day. You have a technical striking session. You do some kind of light rounds where you're kind of putting it all in play, you know, rinse and repeat that cycle. And then you have one day that's really dedicated to doing some good sparring. And for most of the individuals that I worked with, it seemed like a pretty healthy approach to it comparatively to what I saw even five or 10 years before uh, where you did see more like, we're going to do a technical session, then we're going to spar. We're going to do a technical striking session, then we're going to spar. Then we're just going to spar on Wednesday. Yeah, we'll run hills and then we'll spar on Thursday. You know, and it was that approach that the more times you fought, the more resilient you got, the more you were able to hone in those skills. Um, I think more now what I've seen is not necessarily – uh, the, the volume of days sparring. Cause I think quite a few people have actually tapered back off of that quite a bit, or at least what I've been able to observe. It's being able to distinguish what's the appropriate intensity when you're sparring. And that varies widely from training places. I've gone to, I've gone to places where it's the, the kind of classic, but never really happens. I'm going to go 50%. You're going to go 50% together. We give a hundred percent, right? Like, and most people are like, I'm going to go 55% because I'm not going to lose. And the guy across from him is like, I know he's going 55, so I'm going 60. And then it just continues to climb, right? Um, but there's some places that, like, they touch gloves and they say, we're going 100%. That's why you got headgear on, man, right? So, and they just murder each other every time they spar. And then you have a handful of the guys that, weirdly enough, those are the only days that they show up to class. You know, like – so and they're just in there trying to murder people with every swing, every kick, every throw. And I think at the end, like kind of the the takeaway on that realistically is that if you don't have your your head instructor going in and trying to mitigate some of that intensity, the fighters ain't gonna do it. You know, like I, speaking of Steve, we're talking about getting things fired up with grappling in the calf. He said, I don't have to find fighters. He goes, I don't even have to provide a location. I can say we're going to grapple out by the dumpster out back and there'll be 10 guys out there by noon. Right. He's like fighters fight. So you have to you have to be the or not necessarily you, but someone in the facility has to take that leadership role to say, not only is this not necessary, but I'm not going to allow it because that's the only way that you can actually have that calm down. Because I'll tell you right now, being around guys that fight all the time, man, we can't go to top golf without somebody getting slapped or pushed or punched. <laughs> right? Like, 
and and like we used to jokingly, that's how we would bet each other. We like, what do you think is going to happen in this next fight? Uh, submission round two. I'll slap bet you for it, and whoever loses gets smacked. You know, like so we can't like that's just the the kind of that little fire that burns inside people that like to fight. It never goes away. There's always that level of and and unfortunately sometimes that level of competitiveness competitiveness gets filtered into unhealthy habits, but they always have. And, you know, so when we talk about the idea of like sparring like that, you get a bunch of guys like Rumble Johnson in a cage and you're like, spar easy. Well, it's going to last until you turn around. And then you're going to hear that one solid contact out of that 10 ounce glove, hit somebody in the ribs. And you're like, I didn't hit him in the face, you know, like, so, it, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, if that ever goes away in its truest sense, because there's always tough guys in the gym. And if said tough guy gets promoted high enough and he gets to run the show, the fighters aren't going to keep it from happening. Yeah. No, it's interesting. What I've seen um, as well is that even if you start off light, one person just gets caught with a good shot and then it just escalates because then it becomes a, you know, like you said, it goes from sparring to fighting. And, you know, I've observed that. Many times. Um, all right. Well, then let's go back to you know, your journey into strength and conditioning. So when you were at the school age, what were your career aspirations? And then was that the route that you actually took? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you guys ever did these, but we did those, uh, those stupid little, what would you be good at as an adult placement tests? Yes. <laughs> I, think it, I think it spat out an error or something. <laughs> It's like, yeah, you're just screwed. <laughs> well, yeah, and of course, they're, they're super biased, right? Do you like making money? You should be an accountant. You know, like, it's it, they have, but it has to be, you know, at the right reading level for the people that are reading it. And I'm from Oklahoma, so shout out to my people in Oklahoma. I don't mean to offend, but the reading level isn't that generally high, typically. So, like, it's we always kind of jokingly say we dumb it down to a, to a fifth grade reading level. Um I'm victim to it too. So I, I'm not excluding myself from the equation. Uh, no, I, I, I've got lots of, I've got families that are teachers and stuff. I love it. I just, I always have to pick on my home state when I get the opportunity. It's the, I can pick on my own sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, but every test I took that was like that always pushed me towards something that was physical in nature. It, it, it varied all over the place. I got everything from construction worker to military to police to physiotherapy. It always, but it always had a, an element of doing something where I wasn't sitting in a chair, I guess would be probably the common denominator there. And uh, so, you know, with that, I don't know that it really helped direct me, but I think it kind of confirmed some of the things I was thinking or looking at. I did it in early age. I was uh, really, as I mentioned, I was really engaged with the idea of like martial arts and combatives and things like that. And, uh, and I was always really interested in guns. Um, so much so that my dad, as I mentioned, he's a very like kind of reserved, he's a very devout Baptist, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, obviously not a gun person also. Um, and, or maybe not obviously, but well, I'll just say not a gun person. Um, so he used to give me like Fisher Price golf clubs, like the little plastic one, to, like try to get me involved in something else. I turn it around and aim it like a gun at things. Right. So, 
Uh, I still to this day have, he actually made me a, uh, my first double barrel out of two pieces of, uh, straight, like cylindrical. I think they're about half inch around, uh, wood to, they just sawed them off and then made the base of it. No trigger, nothing, just the, the lower receiver. And I still have, it. um, you know, I used to do that all the time. And so marrying together, the uh, like martial arts and stuff like that. And my love for guns, I started really getting into like war movies and things like that. And so I always had this idea, but not necessarily direction that I would be involved with something military. And then as I got closer to the uh, end of my time in high school, um, I really started uh, getting invested in the idea that maybe this is the direction I want to go. And you know, like coincidentally or ironically, actually, for for somebody that's gone in and gotten their master's at university level, I had no desire to go to school, <laughs> zero, um, and and that was appealing too, right? It's like I can go out, I can make a living for myself, I can do stuff with my hands, I can work in a team environment, and I don't ever have to go to school again and take a stupid English class, right? So like I'm not writing any more papers, like that, and that's my mindset going into it, right? And so I did my ASVAB uh, in high school, and I scored pretty high. I actually got recruited uh, the heaviest by the Navy, uh, and then I got wooed uh, by a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps in his blues about how that's exponentially better than the Navy. So, yeah, and then that was how I signed up, and then I was in the delayed entry program for almost a year before I shipped. Yeah. Okay, how long were you in the Marines? So I was just in during my first enlistment, and that's the uh, that was the catalyst for all of my sad, depressing stories in my adulthood. Um, so my time in the Marine Corps, when I first went in, first of all, I have the classic, my recruiter sucked story. Um, I did not end up in the trade that I expected to end up in. I got zero understanding of what boot camp was going to be like ahead of time. Guys showed up. They already knew their general orders. They knew the Marine Corps him, all stuff. I was like, I got a keychain. <laughs> I know I can be the best, the best that I can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, show up and they're going to shave your head. Like that's kind of like the story I got. Right. So, and for somebody that was in blade entry program so long, nothing. He'd take me out to lunch every once in a while. I think it's just because he wanted to get out of the office. You know, like, um, so I didn't really get a lot of preparation there. But despite that, when I got there, um, I kind of jokingly said it was probably because of my hairline. They probably thought I was older than I am. Uh, but I bumped into a leadership role pretty quick. So I got to be a squad leader and I got meritoriously promoted there. And then that kind of carried with me into combat training and, and into my school trade or my MOS school rather. Um, to where I was kind of getting meritoriously promoted or honors along the way. I had a good PFT score. And uh, during that time, I actually ended up uh, getting ill. Uh, I had a really bad infection that uh, made me bedridden. And uh, I had uh, been told, I don't know to what extreme, I'm being told by a corpsman, I don't know if they knew necessarily, but uh, the infection had gone all the way around my eye, had gone around my ear. I couldn't hear out of that ear because it was so swollen. And they told me I could potentially have lost my eye if I hadn't gotten in sooner. To this day, I don't even know how I knew that I maybe have gotten, uh, I was in 29 Palms. Uh, there's scorpions everywhere. That's the only thing I could guess that maybe bit me or something, or maybe I had a spider in my room. But to this day, I have kind of like, it almost looks like a little chicken pox scar under my left eye where that happened. 
And so I had to get treated for all that stuff. During that time, uh, I also had uh, my grandfather, as I mentioned, we were very close growing up. My grandfather got diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia while I was gone. And uh, which that's shifted a lot of the things I do. Like, I know it's not a real popular opinion in the military community, but I, I eat keto because of all the correlations that they've seen with what it does from a neuroprotective quality for people that have uh, been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. Like I saw what it did to my grandfather. I never want to have to go through that myself or expose my family to it. So I'm trying to do everything in my power not to go down that road if I can. Um, but that happened. So now I'm sick. I'm stationary to sit and think, uh, my grandfather got diagnosed and then I got the classic battery of stupid crap. Like, Oh, my girlfriend back home broke up with me. Like, and so I just had this layers of sadness thing happen. Right. And during that time, I ended up getting better. Eventually, obviously I've taken lots of antibiotics and things like that, but I fell behind in what we were doing in a training perspective. And I fell behind in our training, but I was having such a hard time coping with what was going on with my grandfather because I had asked to leave on leave time to go back home for a bit to see him and denied, 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 left and right. And which in hindsight, I understand that's typically not how that works, right? Like, it, it, but I'm new to the Marine Corps. I don't really understand the truest way of how that works because everything I've done up to this point has just been in a training environment, which is not the Marine Corps. And so I, I don't really understand how it works. So now it's like I'm falling behind in my training. So now I got in trouble for the first time. I've been on this hot streak of just getting promoted and everything else. And now that's happening. And I'm struggling with, you know, like girlfriend back home problems, which is stupid, but it is what it is. Um, and then the sadness that I have for what's going on with my grandfather, I feel like I could, I had a hard time distinguishing those two. So every time I had something that upset me with girlfriend back home, I was extra upset on top of that. And I just completely derailed. I completely derailed. And at, I got several junctures where I had somebody that tried to intervene to help me, but I got terrible advice all the way along. And I, I kind of talk about that now in my present that I needed – I think it's an old Vince Vaughn line. He's like, yeah, but there's no, there's no gentle older black man in your prison that gives you the, like the Shawshank redemption like <laughs> thing, right? like, that, that guides you through this tough process. I just needed that one person to be able to say, hey, we need to get you back on track. This is what it is. Everybody deals with these types of things. Like I never had anybody be able to intervene. And my closest friend to this day, who's coincidentally going to be my brother from a legal perspective, he's marrying my sister-in-law uh, pretty soon. My roommate during the time, he was going through his own stuff. There was no way for him. And he, we're you know, 19, 20 years old. What is he going to be able to intervene and give me help with? And one of the guys that was senior in our area was a guy that was transferring to a new MOS. He was with us. Um, absolutely worthless. He gave me the worst advice in the world. He's like, yeah, go talk to these people and whatever, and they'll help you out. And, and I just, again, it just, it was a continuous spiral down and I just never recovered from it. And I ended up being medically discharged. And so now 
I, I go home. My entire identity is wrapped up in – I'm full-on moto, right? Like I was wearing the T-shirts everywhere. I, I used to joke and say I was so moto I'd go home on leave and I would still tuck my skivvy shirt into my underwear when I go to bed at night, right? Like I just never – thought that this would be a thing because I, I would envision myself being a career Marine and I completely brainwashed myself to the idea that this is the only way I can live my life. And my identity is completely stripped away from me. I wake up one day, I'm back in Oklahoma city and I don't know what to do with my life. Right. And the, the hardest thing for me at that point in time and something that I realistically I have to choose every day to forgive myself for is that I went down, I was on the right track and I went down a bad path and subsequently here I am and I didn't have to go through the things that somebody like my close friend that I just mentioned, he went through when he was in Robert in 2006 and he was in Afghanistan in 2009. I didn't get exposed to those things. Why? Because I felt bad about myself. Right? So I had an immense amount of guilt and shame that, that just completely engulfed me during that time. I had no direction. And the only thing that I really knew how to do at that point in time, work out. It was the only thing I had left that connected me. And so I went, I started going to the gym every day and I was there like torturing myself, like trying to work out the, the guilt and shame feelings. And I would work out for like three or four hours a day, just straight. And I mean, when I say I worked out, I was working out. Like I wasn't like texting on my phone. I was like, I showed up and ran for an hour and then did like a 10 by 10 back squat and then ran some more. And like, I was just torturing myself constantly. And there was another individual at the gym that was a trainer there at the time, this guy named Frank Angelillo. And in conjunction with doing that, I was also drinking a lot. I was partying all the time. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around what to do. I burned through every dollar I had saved at that point. And he said, you know what, man? And he, he's a retired sergeant in the Marine Corps. So I valued his opinion greatly. He said, you're here so much, you might as well get paid to be here. That sounds like a good idea. So he actually helped me study for my first personal training certification. And I got certified. And then he was my mentor because we had to do shadowing program for the first, I can't remember, it was hours based. I think it ended up being about three weeks long before I was able to start training people on my own. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was how I started my training career was on the tail end of just trying to find some semblance of purpose in my life. And, you know, realistically, that didn't satiate it right out of the gate. That's only been within the last four or five years. You know, I've been training for almost, I can't remember, what, 17 years this year? And it was the first 12 to 13 I was always looking for other things because I was always trying to find something. And I didn't know this until that point, And that's where it really shifted. I was always trying to find something that felt as good as saying United States Marine to people. And I couldn't, there was nothing, there was nothing I did. It didn't matter what job I went into. And I trained the only way I could make money along the entire way was to keep training people because it was the one thing I was good at. And so 
my long tenure and training career and being good at those things and being able to help people or do performance and stuff like that. In the back of my mind, I was like, I, I just got to pay my bills with this. I've got to be good enough that people want to work with me. So I've got to make sure that I study it. I'm going to make sure I do all those things. My bachelor's degrees are criminal justice and forensic science. I got to the end of that and I was like, that doesn't feel good. I just went back to training, you know? So, I mean, like, I, I, I've been kind of all over the map because I just could not confront or come to terms with the idea that that guilt and shame that was surrounding my poor experience that I basically bestowed on myself as a result of just going down a rabbit hole and, and not having the right people in the right place at the right time to be able to knock me out of that, which is to no fault of anybody else. It just happened that way. That's just how my story panned out. I ended up having this weird journey of constantly, you know, put my iron in this fire, put my iron in that fire, but none of them were hot enough to do what they needed to do. Right. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's been me getting into the strength and conditioning side is a bit from my experience from being an athlete growing up. I found it to be one of the consistent things in my life because you got a PT every day in the military. And then when all of my identity and purpose and consistency was gone, it was the one thing that I could manage and keep consistent. And uh, it turned into a career that's subsequently been something for me that I've been able to give back to people in a position that I felt like I didn't necessarily have the same um, opportunity to conversations with somebody when I was in a place of need. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because it parallels so many transition stories, whether it's first responders, whether it's military, whether that person retired, whether they got hurt, whether they got fired. The If we don't have that thing aside from what we do as our identity, then you know that seems to be a common denominator for a really rough transition. If you saw yourself as a SEAL, as a firefighter, as a cop, and you didn't, you know, become, you know, a coach, uh, you know, entrepreneur, whatever it was, then people do struggle. So when you said, you know, it took a few years to actually get to the point where obviously that shifted and you found value in yourself and your work again, what was that pivotal moment in your strength and conditioning journey? Yeah, so uh, realistically, it took about 10 years. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would say realistically, so a big part of it for me was I finally broke down and went to the stupid thing that doesn't work and talked to somebody. Um, I, I was adamantly against it. Adamantly against it. My mother, being a counselor, she's like, I know you probably don't want to talk to me about it, right? Because I'm mom, right? And, but I would highly highly encouraged and she did that for years like she could tell like she would see me i don't know if i look tired i don't know what the but and she's mom too which helps right but she could just see it in my face and she would make suggestions all the time and uh you know growing up um my my family history does have depression in it uh i won't spill the beans too much on my brother's situations but both my brothers struggled with it very hard growing up uh to the point of hospitalization um, and, uh, so I, I observed that growing up 
And so I will say that the one thing that kind of kept me when I was really getting to the point of like feeling that level of disparity and stuff was seeing that growing up and wanting to go down that road. Um, that may be a weird boundary, but I don't know. But when I felt like I, I always kind of jokingly said uh, when I was talking with uh, the individual that I'm about to mention, this guy named Robert Huckleberry in Oklahoma, uh, I, I used to say my ability to fake it was like the old video game turbo button, right? And every time something bad happened, I hit that X button and it dropped it a little bit. And if nothing bad happened, it would refill. But if something else bad happened, it's going to drop it a little bit lower. And lower and lower and lower until you get to the bottom and there's no turbo left. You're just struggling at the end, trying to refill and it goes away. Refill and you're empty. And the closer I got to that end point of it just refilling and empty, refilling and empty was when I finally said I need to go talk to somebody. Because I could tell that I was just really – I was really hanging on by a thread emotionally at that point. And, uh, and the thing is is that it impacted everything around me. I, I, at that point I'd actually been married and divorced. Um, I had started a business with a guy that ended up basically robbing me blind, um, uh, and, and literally changed the locks and, and moved all the money out of the bank account overnight. Um, like I, I'd been through all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and I was just like, I, if I don't talk to somebody, I don't know how I progress forward. Like I'm at this age, I'm at this stage in my career and this is my indefinite and I don't like it. And so I went and talked to him and Rock, Robert's the man. I love Robert to death. Like he's a great dude. Uh, he's an old powerlifting guy. He's a monstrous human. He's like six, seven. I don't know how much he weighs, but he's just a big cowboy. And so, but I could talk to him because he was, he was like, oh, you like to lift weights and stuff like that. So he'd use lots of weightlifting analogies so I could understand it, right? Um, and one day, and it was like the second time I had seen him. I had seen him before, but this was the first time that I had come to see him and I wanted to be there. And it was like the second time I'd seen him and he was like, yeah, it just sounds like you feel or you're, you're dealing with a lot of guilt that revolves around your time in the military. We weren't even talking about the military, first of all. So I was a little, I was a little almost offended by his comment initially. But it, I, I described it to him as if he had poured hot liquid down my throat and I felt it permeating into my extremities. It was this really weird moment of, of clarity. I immediately, I had tears in my eyes. Like I, it just overwhelmed me. And that was the end of our session. We'd been talking for like five or 10 minutes, I think, at that point. And I could not bring myself to say anything. I was so overwhelmed by the comment that I didn't know where to go in the conversation. And for me, that was the moment that I had the breakthrough that I understood what I was struggling with. He didn't have to tell me the fact that I was searching for those other avenues. I knew at that point. I knew based on what he said that those things were what I was actually struggling with. It wasn't that these jobs weren't good enough. It was that they were never going to fulfill the emptiness that I had created inside myself with the expectation that it would say the same thing as saying United States Marine to people when I have those conversations of what do you do, where have you been? And uh, so once I had that moment of clarity, then the subsequent conversations we had became, you know, why don't you feel like what you do fulfills? 
where do you find your purpose? What what is your purpose? And and some of those deep like the dreaded who are you question, right? You know, like, oh, I'm Kevin. Oh, that's your name. Okay, like yeah, you do that back and forth, right? And um, which don't don't get me wrong, great exercise. Just the most frustrating conversation you've ever had in your life. <laughs> somebody asks that in context because um, I had 20 answers and they were all wrong. Um, but uh, in that moment, you know, it, it was it was really. Uh, those defining, why don't you feel like what you do impacts people? And then I start thinking back, right? Now it's like, I've, I've been doing this for, ten, I think, 11 years at that point. Um, all these different faces pop into my head, people that I've worked with, people that I've helped achieve goals and things like that. And I was like, it actually is really like, I, I kind of knew that it was fulfilling, but I never let it be fulfilling. And it, completely shifted my perspective on the impact I was having on people and what ultimately led my uh, my journey into wanting to work more with people that were like law enforcement and because I was already working with fighters at this point um, I had worked with quite a few people that were general population I've been in the CrossFit world speaking of liking to torture myself I feel like there's two groups of people that go into CrossFit there's sadists and masochists and some combination thereof those are the only two people that go to CrossFit's um, but you know, like I, I went through, uh, you know, all these different journeys and was able to think of something, but one specific that stuck out in my mind as far as like being able to, or wanting to work with military people, uh, or personnel or, um, or law enforcement or something in that, that respective area was a conversation I had with a good friend of mine, a guy named Brandon Bowen. He's like a mentor to me in all things. The guy is greatly successful in everything he touches, and it's super annoying that he's good at everything, but he is what he is. Um, and uh, yeah, no, but he's he's been a great mentor to me, and he told me a story. So I think currently he's a lieutenant colonel. I don't know if he's lieutenant colonel or if he's a colonel right now. I think he's getting ready to pin on, so I may have, I may have uh, demoted him just momentarily, but – um, anyhow, he's in the air force. Um, and he had told me a story about one of his deployments as to why he got into heavily into strength training. He's a big boy from Texas, so he's probably strong already, but this just, uh, continued to, uh, push his drive to stay in shape was he had told me a story about an individual, uh, that was in his, uh, I think he's a medical officer, but he was, uh, in his medical wing, uh, that got, caught in a rollover uh, as a result of an IED blast and that individual was fine but the vehicle caught fire and they weren't strong enough to open the door and they died as a result of the fire that came subsequent to the IED blast because they couldn't open the door and he said I will never die because I'm not strong enough to open one of those doors that will never happen he was like this is just my ultimate depiction of the worst way to die. And that story, when he first told it to me, I was like, yeah, it's a horrific, tragic story. Never really sunk in to what that means, right? Then I start working with military people that can barely squat their own body weight. And I'm like, that's a problem, right? But not for the same reason that generally speaking, you would think from a health perspective, also that, but the fact that given the fact that I've already heard a story that would 
resonate for me as being vitally important for you to be strong. So I could give that illustration to say, this has happened to somebody else. But the simple fact that I'm the person that can have the impact on you. It's not about you deciding it necessarily, although it is important that you have the buy-in. I can directly influence whether or not this person potentially lives or dies down the road. And that connection, that one day, it was the same feeling I had when I was sitting in Robert's chair. And I don't know how those pieces aligned in my brain. My brain works weird anyway. I always tell people it's all over the place as it is. I don't know why Brandon's story that he had told me probably two or three years before resonated with that one military person that's standing in front of me with that moment in sitting in Robert's chair a year or two before. Like, I don't know how all those pieces connected, but when it did, it was that when you talk about my moment in my career where it really shifted gears for me, that was it. See, that's that's so interesting to, to hear because, I mean, firstly, from my own perspective, I simultaneously was a firefighter paramedic and also a coach at CrossFit. And I used to tell people, you know, when I'm at work, it's reactive. It's too late. The, the, you know, they've already eaten themselves to death. They've already, you know, rolled their car over, whatever it is, and we are just there to mitigate whatever disaster is in front of us. In the gym space, I said it's pre-act, pre, uh, excuse me, proactive, not pre-active. Um, where I hope that I can be a part of the tapestry that that person is never in the back of our rescue, 300 pounds and sticking a tube down the throat and my ugly face is the last thing they ever see. So I, I actually understand that, you know, all those different perspectives that you got. Um, what I, what I'm curious before we kind of move forward though, as you mentioned, your brother struggled, you know, with depression. Um, it sounds like even the title of Marine was, filling maybe a void as well when you look back were there any elements you said about a you know great childhood were there any elements of that upbringing whether it was parents at school whatever because i mean the the spectrum of trauma that i've seen on the show is everywhere from a boy soldier through to the middle child and everything in between so are there any things when you look back now you go ah maybe maybe that was one of the reasons why i felt like i had to compensate with an identity like a Marine, for example. I can tell you exactly what it is. I don't have to think back to it. Um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so I'll say this. So uh, my oldest brother, well, I'll say it this way. Actually, everybody in my family, um, I always say I am the intellectual runt in my family. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with standardized testing and things like that in the States, but uh, ACT score, to my understanding, I think a 36 is the max you can get. Um, Kirk, my oldest brother, he took it, I think he took it when he was like in the ninth grade or something like that, got 35, right? So like, so he was a national merit. He had the highest score in the PSAT in the state when he was in the, he was still in junior high. Um, Mikey is the same way. He's, uh, he's got his master's in microbiology and he's a statistician for the university there. Like not even in his field and he's still crushing it, right? My dad was a geologist, became a pathologist. My mother was a French teacher, became a counselor. Everybody scored well into the 30s. 22, I took it three times, couldn't get higher, right? Um, and so there was elements of that. Both of my brothers were in the gifted programs in school. Not this one. I'm the only person in my family that doesn't speak a second language. Um, 
the only instrument I play halfway well is the drums. And that's just because realistically, all you got to do is bang your hands into things and it makes noise. Uh, brothers are cellist. Mikey plays like five instruments. My dad plays the guitar. My mother plays the piano. I felt like I didn't fit in. But one thing that I had over my brothers is that I had accolades in sports, athleticism. And Within sports, I won awards that were dedicated towards my ability to be a team player. Uh, the athletic director of my high school gives out an award in, in uh, honor of his son uh, that's about the one person in all the sports of the entire high school that displayed the best overall leadership as a team player. I won that award. So the way I fit into the puzzle piece, in my mind, that made up for my intellectual shortcomings comparatively to my family was that I could do things well physically. And what better way to do that than the old acronym of uh, muscles are required, intellect is not expected of being a Marine, um, right? So my thought process is I can go into the military and that is as good as being a lawyer or a statistician, which are the respected jobs. See, so it, so interesting. So just just with your your brothers, then. So you have these uber intelligent men who are you know multifaceted when it comes to music, when it comes to language. Was there an element, as we see a lot of times with people with high intellect, that they struggle socially, and was that an element of their mental health struggles? I would say, so I was young enough that I didn't quite understand some of it. Uh, from, a, from just a, the memory of it is patchy. Um, but I do know that like uh, my oldest brother, Kirk, uh, he was one of those kids that if I was looking at it at my age now, looking at him, he was the kid that was, smart to the point he was bored, right? So he would get in trouble in high school and things like that. Like he had, uh, you know, like I think he ended up having a DUI or something like that when he was like 19, but he was like on his way to graduate with two bachelor's degrees that he ran concurrently by the time he was like 20. So, I mean, it, I feel like for him, that was it. He did have his close circle of friends, but he wasn't, like he wasn't like going to be your most popular kid on campus or anything like that. The guy tests off the charts, but I think he graduated with like maybe like a 3.2 or something like that. Like his intellect, I think became in a weird way, a limiting factor for him just because they didn't provide the level of challenges that he was probably looking for or could tolerate that would keep him out of trouble <laughs> per se. Um, and then Mikey, uh, you know, Mikey and I were, were polar opposites uh, from a high school's perspective. I was a jock kid, right? I wasn't like the most popular kid in school by any means, but that was my circle, right? Like I was in with all the, the football players and stuff, which is big in Oklahoma, right? And, and Mikey, played in band competitions and stuff like that. Like he played his guitar, so he's like cool, right? But he was playing like Black Flag and like Pantera. So like not stuff that's usually like high school friendly, right? So, and uh, so he liked, you know, he was rocking, you know, the wife beater, the chain wallet and the Doc Martens, you know, like, so um, he, they were just in different circles, right? And 
I don't know how much that genuinely impacted them from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I feel like probably their ability to be overly analytical may have been a downfall for them when it came to dealing with things that were emotion based. And we did our neighborhood that we grew up in when I was younger, before we moved, I, I mentioned the move when I was in the fourth grade. So I was pretty young when it happened, but Kirk is what he's six and a half years older than I am. Um, and then Mikey's uh, two and a half years older than I am. So Mikey, maybe not as much so, but Kirk definitely had a better understanding of what was going on around our house. Our next door neighbors, when I was young, my dad used to explain it this way. He said, there was 13 people leave, living in that house. It was like a two bedroom house. And he goes, that's the first time I ever saw anybody in person smoke crack. So our neighborhood from an outside perspective probably didn't look that bad, but most of the people in our neighborhood weren't super well off and our neighbors were especially not. And so stories that I remember my brothers saying of like, they had like a tire hanging in the back that they used to train their dogs to like bite and hang from. We have a three foot chain link fence between us, you know, like we weren't allowed to play in the backyard. I was too young. I don't remember that stuff, but they, they distinctively remember things like that. So I have zero doubt in my mind that they were exposed to traumatic events that I don't either I blacked out and just don't remember at all or I wasn't exposed to that they were. So I don't have a doubt in my mind to kind of go back to, to the idea of whether or not they struggled with those things later on in their life or that impacted their social circles or how they viewed things. I can't think that that didn't impact them. Um, and maybe I was just fortunate enough not to be exposed to it. Yeah, it's just so interesting when you go and reverse engineer so many issues, you know, and, you know, obviously we're here to talk about, you know, combatives and strength and conditioning, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, you know, this, every single issue that you see, whether it's prostitution, whether it's addiction, whether it's, you know, gang violence, when you reverse engineer to those toddlers, there's a story, you know, which is what drives me crazy when people pigeonhole. Oh, it's a bum, it's a crackhead, it's a whore, it's a you know, a hoodlum, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, that's a human being that had a path and you're standing there in your suit working for Corporation X and that person's living under a bridge. And if you negate the journey that took them there and now you're judging them, then, you know, you're not living any religious doctrine that you claim to be a part of. You're you're a piece of shit. So if we don't go back and explore these early times, that's where the solutions are, you know? So it's, you know, it's it's so... So interesting hearing these different journeys because I've had so many on here now and, you know, they're, they're many times kind of completely unsolicited. And, you know, again, like everyone has an interesting childhood. We talked about the bombing, but, you know, so many people have elements of trauma and it may look a thousand different ways to, to a thousand different people, but it's still traumatic to the individual. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, talking about like the, the going back early enough uh, and maybe this ends up being the segue that you need to be able to move into the next part if you want to. I don't, you can decide that on your own. You're the you're the expert here. But uh, uh, yeah, so like I've had something that's been pressing on me uh, for quite some time, and it's I always say it's the the voice in my, the back of my head that has gradually gotten louder over time is uh, being involved with uh, like mentorship programs that were using the the grappling piece as the hook to get people involved. And, um, but really it's all about mentorship. This goes back to, I felt like I could have used a mentor in that 
that critical time of uh, when I was in the military and I was struggling and I didn't have. Uh, but this also showed up later in life when I mentioned I had done some adjunct coaching for the middle school. When the middle school that I was at, that I was adjunct coaching for, uh, was most, I can't remember how they rate it, but it's like the free and reduced lunches. So it was a low income school. I think they were at like 90% or something like that. Very low income school. Um, and, but it's my old stomping ground. So it's like, yeah, I used to go to that gas station and get, you know, like, you know, Frosties or whatever. Right. So I could talk to those kids cause like I grew up in that area. Um, but I just remember like I was working with some of these kids and we would have, you know, and we're talking, you know, sixth graders, right? Like some of these kids are only like 11, 12 years old. And we'd have people that like show up drunk to their football game so much so that I had to drive a kid home. I'd tell dad to go home, try to call them a cab, which never works. And you tell the campus police to make them leave. And then I have to drive that kid home to his apartment complex to now his pissed off drunk dad. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. You know, um, I've had times where, you know, like kid comes in for wrestling practice and he just looks wrecked. Man. Did you sleep last night? You out playing video games all night? Oh, no, I haven't eaten in two days. We didn't have any food in our house over the weekend. You know, I'm like, oh, crap, man. Like, are you on the backpack program? No, my mom doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to sign me up. I can't sign him up. You know, like, um, I, I've even had a kid that we basically found out through his stories and it's an assumption but a pretty good one that his mom's probably a prostitute because there was this crappy little hotel that i'm aware of i'll tell you because we used to party at that hotel when i was in high school because nobody checked on people there like you could be 16 years old and get a room sketchy already right but he said he would go there and he's like 11 or 12 years old and he would stay up in the lobby overnight while his mom met people. And he's got random dudes like walking through the lobby, like, you know, grown men that would just sit down and just start having conversations with him. Like, and so, and the crazy thing about this to me is that that school from an outside perspective, you wouldn't look at that school and be like, that's a rough school. These are just normal kids as we would define them, right? And that's also why I kind of go back and I thank my parents, I can't tell you how many times, for my normal upbringing that I didn't have to do stuff like that, right? So there, there's kind of a duality there. Like I'm, I'm grateful for my background in that section of my life, but it also makes me wish that during different parts of my life I'd had people to step in when I needed them the way that I'm able to do it for them now. And that's when it clicked for me is that maybe the impact for me is that I've been through some things enough to be able to say, don't go that way, you know, and, uh, and, and be able to be there or at least be able to have those conversations. And, um, that's something that's always been on my heart, you know, to do later in my life, even if I don't do it right now, cause I got to pay bills and stuff like that. And I can't afford to not be working. Right. Um, and, uh, but how, how do I make that work, you know, moving forward and what would that program look like and all those things. And, uh, it, but being able to be that voice for, for somebody. And it's actually a big part of like one of the things that I, uh, it was a shameless plug. I'm not going to get my handle, but some of the things I do on my social media is I post the leadership stuff regularly. And, uh, the reason that I do that is for me to log it 
personally. So I have something to go back through and just kind of every once in a while I just reread them. But it's I'm investing a lot of time and effort into that because that leadership stuff, I want to be able to to use those tools and those lessons that I've learned from all those people that already have established themselves as great leaders so that I can have those conversations when I need to be able to have them. And uh, so that's become my new obsession in addition to doing the strength and conditioning stuff is just hammering in on uh, like mental toughness, mental resiliency, things I wish I knew at those critical points in my life that unfortunately I just didn't have uh, anybody that was taking me down that road or mentoring me in that capacity at that given point in time and being able to say, hey, I wish I had known these things when I was your age. Well, and I think that seems to be the one of the resounding answers to so many of the issues that we see. I just had a guy, Chad uh, Chad, Chad Lyman, on the uh, show this morning. I just interviewed him, and he's a, a cop in Vegas. And, you know, I asked him, you know, what's the root of some of the issues that you're seeing on the crime side? And again, it was the family unit. And, of course, there are some things I think that as a, as a nation we can do. Me personally, I think drug prohibition is an epic failure and that creates a lot of, you know, death and, and empowering the underworld. Um, but, you know, there's also bolstering the funding for the poorer schools. I mean, you know, so many areas, but the one thing that all of us can do is mentorship. And I see it work so well in the fire service. Our local agencies here have an amazing mentorship program. No matter what part of town you're from, as long as you can make it to where they're training, Everything else is free. The training, the gear, and then there's the scholarships to go to fire school. And it's something I talk about a lot because I really feel it's the answer. Whether it's a boxing gym in, in New York run by PD, you know, there's so many, so many areas where you see that work. And a thing that I see at the moment is everyone's just pointing fingers and not doing anything to actually be a part of the solution. Yet we can, whether it's through wrestling, football, whatever it is, Go out in our communities. Even now, my son just joined uh, ROTC. Like, I, I don't have a military background. I know a lot of very cool people now from the military, but I don't know that life. So, you know, I'm hoping that that's going to be a, a different mentor, um, you know, figure for him. Um, but yeah, so I agree completely. These these kids, whether they're from an ex, you know incredibly wealthy background, whether they're from a poor background, whether you know they've got great parents, and you know they just need an, a someone from another field to be a mentor i think that's one of the things that you just don't hear discussed and is so so important to just go out there and as you said find someone in your community find that one person the nucleus of that circle and help them and then if we all do that that will resonate out to where we make a massive paradigm shift in this country and and countries around the world yeah i you know i i don't recall where i heard this general statement from so uh, I would like to be able to give credit to them, but the idea that it's like our culture, at least the westernized civilization, our culture, there is no rite of passage for men. Um, and I would like to be able to speak to women, but I don't have any daughters. Uh, I, I'm not female myself to be able to say I know how that culture goes, so I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I know that there's no right of culture uh, or a rite of passage on the men's side of things as far as like this is what it means to be a man, and, and, and not in the way that it's being condemned. And, and that's one of the things I think is so, so mistreated right now, just culturally, is the idea that being a man somehow is a derogatory thing. And, you know, like, I, I was having this conversation actually recently, 
And I said, you know, like the way I think of what being a man is, and this is also, if you had asked me this 10 years ago, my definition would have been different in, in variable. But is things like our ability to hold doors for people. Like that's, that's a, I, I view that as being a manly thing, right? Is being strong enough to be humble enough to be able to open a door for somebody, right? It, it's, it's such a small task, but it's such a huge display that your time, I'm making it more valuable than my time, just in the meeting, just to show you that I respect you as a human being. Right. Like that's mind blowing when you actually put your like kind of like thinking hat on and and really concentrate on what it is that you're doing when you do that for someone. And those are the types of things that I like. And so here, here is my shameless plug. I don't have anything. Somebody's probably going to for sure steal this at this point because I don't have anything trademarked or registered <laughs> or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, if someone steals this, I'm, I'm going to start scouring the Internet looking for tags. Um yeah, so my mentorship program, the concept behind it was that it was going to be leadership driven. And the program originally was going to be weightlifting based. But it's funny because I'll give you the quick background story. University class in my master's that I wanted to be in got canceled. You have to have a set number of university students that sign up for that class. My university program for my master's was relatively small. Had to be a set number of students that sign up for the class to take. Wasn't enough people in that time frame. Didn't take I had to go into a health promotion-based class where we had to create a non-for-profit program. Kill me now. I don't want to be involved in this. This sounds terrible, right? Because I'm emphasizing biomechanics in my master's. It's like, couldn't be different within the same realm of general things. It couldn't be more different than it is. And so I'm like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And I created this program in the mindset of that kind of voice that was within me for a grade, not because I wanted to do it. By the time I was done with it, I was like, I could really run this program. And so divine intervention, I don't know, right? But it was bizarre how I ended up in a class that I had no desire to be in because I needed the credits. I made up a BS class that I had nothing, I didn't want anything to do with, or I'm sorry, a BS project I wanted nothing to do with in a class that I didn't want to be in. And then it evolved into something that has become a project that is on the forefront of my mind any given day that I want to ultimately be able to run at some point in time when I have the resources to do. And so it was a program called Lifted. Nice little double entendre there. Yeah, yeah. L I <laughs> But it was uh, – the idea was that it was leadership, integrity, fortitude, uh, tact, uh, enthusiasm, and discipleship was the last one. And uh, there is a faith-based component to it in its original development. Uh, you know, for me, you know, Robert was a, a faith-based, uh, I told you both my parents are very Baptist. You could guess the counselor they were going to send me to had a faith-based element to it. Um, and so for me to leave that out of the equation is just the incomplete side of the story. I'm not here to preach it to people, but that was part of it, right? So the idea was that the discipleship was that you would also encourage other people to come in and be a part of this program and so on and so forth. And, um, and I liked, and what I took from Robert was that he was like, he could literally correlate all of these life lessons that you could take as being either biblical or just as being life lessons to weightlifting. I was like, what, an, what a magical correlation you can make there. 
Uh, I've since kind of evolved it into being more of a grappling thing because it has multiple layers to it, which we can get into if you'd like. But that was the idea behind that. And the whole concept was to intervene as a mentorship program that had a rite of passage component to it that we taught you know, young teenagers or younger kids, boys, girls, whomever wanted to be involved, what leadership really is, what it means to have integrity, what it means to have, you know, the fortitude to be able to do these things, tact and enthusiasm about what you do and discipling to others. And the interesting thing about it for me, I think, is the fact that I am exemplary of somebody that's failed in each of one of these respective things and has since gained a significant amount of respect for people that are able to do these things. And I think in my research of it, I suppose, or studying those respective areas, I have a newfound respect for all of them and think that it's important that we teach those things. And I feel like they're definitely areas where people are falling off socially. So, Well, I know what the role that you found yourself in now, you're working with prehab, you're working with strength and conditioning, you're working with post-injury rehab. So how did you find it yourself in that that space? And I'd really love to kind of start unwrapping some of the the things that you've seen as far as the strength and conditioning preventative work that's reduced some of the injuries. Yeah, so uh, the actual way that I found myself in this job was just pure luck, coincidence, spiritual, you know, divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. It, it just so happened that this, the, the original role that I had within the organization I'm in. So my organization, the bigger umbrella of the organization is CFMWS, Canadian Forces Morale and Welfare Services. And then within that bigger uh, organization, I work with PSP, which is Personal Support Programs. Um, so really, Personal Support Programs actually encompasses lots of things, community rec, gas attendance, like every, so I, I'm within the fitness and sports or FNS realm of PSP. So that's our even further whittled down subdivision within the organization. Uh, but a lot of this organization is derivative of the fitness and sports. And then the other things kind of umbrellaed out of it later, it actually used to be a military job. They referred to it as a parry trade in the Canadian military. So it was something where you could be trained to be as kind of like a lateral mover, a billet, like a drill instructor, whatever you could be a fitness instructor. And then it turned civilian, which I wasn't around when that happened. So I couldn't give you the background on that. Um, as far as the specific job that I was in. So my department that I'm in currently is the reconditioning department. Um, I don't know what that would be like U S equivalent as far as what it was called. It used to be regional adaptive fitness. Uh, so RAF or RAF's, um, specialist, uh, and then it's since been reformed into reconditioning. And what we predominantly do is the rehabilitative part or the continuance of care. So the easiest way I can explain what our role looks like for people is that, uh, if you were to go in a privatized setting to like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, what have you, typically they'll do the acute, um, uh, treatment for the symptoms and things like that to get you to a point of tolerance to where you can start doing more of the exercises that will ultimately lead to the corrective aspects down the road for the sustainability part of it, as opposed to just constantly being treated for your symptoms. And so at our respective bases that we work on, um, the, the physiotherapy, if, and some bases don't have physiotherapy at all, but the bases that have physiotherapy, they don't have the bandwidth to be able to do the continuance of care 
nor does occupational therapy for the number of troops that come through their caseload. So that's basically what we do. So they do more of the symptom. It's not to say they don't do those exercises, but they do more of the symptom treatment, getting them to the point of tolerance. And then we actually do the administration of the exercise programs themselves. Um, and we also develop them. It's not something that we do completely under their umbrella. We work collaboratively with them. And those referrals come from their chain of command or whoever else. Uh, really, anybody that's on what's referred to as a MELS or a medical employment limitation, so anything that keeps them from functioning at a full capacity, they would be eligible to work with us. Um, and they have a degree of discretion as to whether or not they can do that or not. Just recently, we've been campaigning for more involvement with PSP at the unit line. So brigade command is now mandated it for them at our base. Um, so now they don't have a choice, but they historically have had a choice as to whether or not they would use us as a resource um, for that. And so that's more my piece of the puzzle. Um, when I first came into the position, uh, it was just uh, the person that I'm backfilling. So I'm actually backfilling a, a permanent full-time contract for another individual that's on her uh, year-long mat leave um, in my current role. Uh, when I first came in, she was my hiring supervisor. So she hired me into the position. And uh, it just so happened that about the same time that my working permit, uh, when I moved here to Canada, because I've only been here since 2018, about the time my working permit came through and got approved, this job that I took, well, the job that I took initially had come available. So it was, it was just, like I said, if you call it whatever you want to call it, coincidence or divine intervention or whatever, it just happened to pop up about the same time. And I was very fortunate because uh, the specific credential that they were looking for at the time uh, was a CEP with either, um, so certified ex uh, exercise physiologist with either ACSM or with the Canadian equivalent, which is CSEP. Uh, I didn't have that specific certification. I had my CSCS and I had an abundance of experience working with people that had been injured through military uh, combat sports, different things like that. And I actually beat out two other people that had their CEP uh, by virtue of the fact of my experience and my skill set that I actually had was very complementary to what my hiring manager had. So I, again, it was one of those things where it's like, I probably shouldn't have gotten the job, but I did. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, it was just a timeline thing. Um, being involved in the military, as I mentioned, that, that has uh, kind of a rooted history with uh, you know, guys like Brandon and his stories that he gave me and some of the people that I got to work with at the 45th and through other avenues and things like that. So I always kind of had an interest. So as soon as I saw that job pop up, I was definitely uh, interested in the idea of working there. But as far as actually getting the job, that was just right place, right time. And, uh, and so, you know, as they say, the rest is history sort of thing. Um, I've now kind of in a weird way become, I jokingly call myself designated hitter, uh, for my, uh, supervisor. So the, the manager of all of our department in that right now, uh, or let me start my timeline. When I first came in, I was the physical exercise specialist. So that's kind of low man on the totem pole on the reconditioning side. And then a permanent contract came up for fitness instructors. So that's more delivering of unit level PTs and things like that. So I took that position uh, because the contract I was on was a temporary full-time contract. Um, and then, so I took that permanent uh, contract and then the person that hired me into the PES position was getting ready to go on mat leave. 
So less than a month later, I'm now in the reconditioning manager position, which is the top person in the reconditioning world. And then once she returns, uh, the person that's the fitness coordinator, so her equivalent on the fitness side uh, is gone now. And so I'm going to be rolling into that position. So I'll have moved into all four positions that exist aside from actual senior level manager in fitness and sports in the two and a half years that I've worked there. So, uh, but that I think has a lot to do with the fact that I have a background that complements both the performance and the rehabilitative side. So I move around a lot in that department. <laughs> now you, you talked about the NSCA. Um, I, this is my own personal opinion, like through the CSCS, which I actually did all, all the training for, I never took the test in the end. Um, but then the, uh, the TSAC, um, I find those very, very pertinent in the tactical space with you having certs from other areas as well. What's your opinion on that organization when it comes to strength and conditioning in the tactical athlete? Well, I'll say right now, you know, like I always kind of jokingly call certifications the gateway drug to knowledge um, because what it, I would say probably the best thing that it realistically does is even being a member of the organization, even if you don't have those specific uh, specific certifications is that what it does is it opens a door to all the resources and the people and stuff like that. Like the networking element of being in those organizations is second to none because I won't lie. Like you can sit down and, and read and learn all kinds of stuff that you would get that would be the equivalent of getting one of those certifications. Right. But the, the ability to have those letters behind your name, whatever they are, it opens the door to the community of people that exist within those spaces. And, you know, like TSAC, like I, to my understanding, as far as like, if you were to stack them up, as far as what the expectation of education and things like that, it's actually a lower expectation than what the CSCS is, but the TSAC community of people that are involved in like their conferences and their, uh, even just like their Facebook groups and stuff like that. There's just continuous info. As a matter of fact, there's a, a great article that I saw pop up the other day that was in regards to like people not reporting injuries and stuff that I shared in my story this morning, I think. But I mean, like just the immense amount of information sharing and stuff like that that comes as a result of those communities, that's invaluable. Like I, I don't think, and if <laughs> no other reason, people also post jobs and things in there. So it's like, the, the element of, of connecting and networking, I don't think that's unique to our space as far as like strength and conditioning by any means, but uh, that that's really the most valuable part of it, in my opinion. And then the next layer of that is the information sharing of, because people will literally go into some of these forums and, you know, like, hey, this is going to be the speaker that's, you know, addressing us at the conference or they're going to be open to questions or whatever it is. And you have this avenue that you wouldn't have otherwise to, to pick the brain of somebody that's been doing this for 20 years. You're probably going to get more information out of them in that 10 minutes than you are, you know, the next 10 months of just reading through manuals and things like that, because that's that's firsthand experience that you can't get in a in a book. Right. So that's how I see it a lot for those organizations and things like that is more. Yes, they have an information and they create a, an industry standard and they do all those things that you would expect. And I think realistically, when you get a certification, it's not necessarily a uh, indication that you know a lot. It's an indication that you invested the time 
to show that you have a vested interest in the organization and what it does for the industry standard. So it's more about, I care that there is a standard more than I'm this brilliant person. And so that's also why I don't like it when people like to flash their letters at people necessarily, because it's like, that doesn't really tell me that you know a lot. It just tells me that you took the time to let me know you at least vested the minimum to show that you're going to meet the industry standard, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, as far as the organization as a whole, yeah, I think it's great, but I don't know that it's because of the, the certification itself as much as what the, um, the community that comes with being involved in those, you know, respective areas. Beautiful. Well, one thing that I want to kind of, um, you know, get your perspective on is in my entire career, sadly, when firefighters get hurt, what I end up seeing is drug prescription, surgery, um, and, you know, the PT is usually post-surgery, you know. Um, I have seen and, you know, through my own recovery, uh, rehabbing a horrendous back injury back without any surgery, any meds, um, you know, minimizing the amount of meds on, on these surgeries I had using CBD and some other things, but the prehab and then the rehab using exercise, using movement, using mobility, um, I think is so undervalued in the first responder profession. So w- what are you seeing as, as the mindset for a lot of these members of military that you're working with? Are they expecting to put hard work in and are they, are, do they understand how many injuries can be reversed with movement or are you seeing that same kind of, um, you know, quick fix mentality that's been ingrained in a lot of us? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I'm going to shamelessly plug my organization as far as what we've been. No, um, we've been actually doing, so my senior manager, my boss, uh, and then my, my counterpart in the fitness side currently, uh, we're actually campaigning across our base Uh, going unit to unit, speaking to the COs, the DCOs, the RSMs, whoever will listen uh, at base and brigade level. And uh, we're doing that as a way to kind of inform them of like what we can provide from a service perspective, but also it's just an educational piece. Um, So I'll give you my three taglines that I use. Uh, I always jokingly say that these are my things that preach uh, when I talk to them. And so Uh, The first thing I always tell them in these conversations is that the best injury prevention program is a comprehensive strength and conditioning program. So that's number one. Um, And, you know, because a lot of times that is, and honestly, that's the way we get in the door is that we're going to talk about injury prevention, right? The reality is, is if you comprehensively do strength training and regular bouts of general preparedness, conditioning, and all those things, and, it, and it's packaged in a way that is uh, well-rounded enough that we're not just going in and saying, oh, you need to be able to, you know, ruck three days a week and stuff like that, which is kind of traditional in the military where it's like, you ruck and you run, you ruck and you run, right? If we can start adding in those layers to complement those stressors, like, that's usually enough. Like, it doesn't have to be more complicated Um, the other thing, and it's something that I, uh, kind of alluded to with the post I shared about people not reporting injuries, um, is that that is a culture in the military, which I would assume is similar to fire and police is that people that have sustained an injury, there's this 
uh, kind of unspoken, but also sometimes spoken uh, idea that if you're to speak up that you've been hurt, that you're somehow going to be shunned. Uh, and, the, and the person that's able to make their way from point A to point B, despite an injury, is somehow more honorable than the other. Where in reality, you know, like you need to be able to use all of the necessary resources and tools to get yourself back to 100% health because if you're hiding it or lying about it, there's nothing honorable in that because really what you're doing is you're hindering your ability to perform, which could be putting your life or somebody else's in jeopardy just on the pride basis that you don't want to tell someone you're hurt, right? And so here's my second piece to that uh, little triad of, of preachable things is when I was working, because uh, I did a lot of work with combat sport athletes, um, one of the more known athletes I worked with was an individual named Matt Grice when he was fighting in the UFC. And he and I just had a very frank conversation one time. And he just said, you know, the only one thing you can control in a fight is the shape you're in when you show up. And that's why I'm here. Right. So, and you know, like that became like, I used to put that on t-shirts for people when they were training with me and all kinds of, but that, I mean, that was such a, a direct and like tangible truth. To the, to the point of why we do what we do from a strength and conditioning standpoint is that, yeah, that's the one factor I can control in all of this. And, uh, you know, so that's another thing that we add to the equation when it comes to preaching this and campaigning to the unit lines. And the last one is, uh, you know, more the reconditioning piece. So more how I fit into the puzzle pieces right now to make the big picture of you cannot build resilience by avoidance. And so that's one of the more common things as well is that people will avoid, you know, because it's uncomfortable, because they don't want to be seen as being lesser because they've been injured or whatever the case may be, but that's really common as well. And so to speak more directly uh, to the mindset of those persons, I think we are no different in the Canadian Armed Forces in that uh, the culture is still kind of around that. If I tell people I'm hurt, if I tell people that I can't do something, that I'm weak, that I won't be treated as an equal, I'll miss out on job opportunities. I'll, you know, and there's just a laundry list of things there. And um, it's very unfortunate. And we're trying to shift that mindset. Um, but also the other part of it too, is that there's also a lot of pride in the, we can do it ourselves. We don't need any help. And so uh, the unfortunate part of that from, you know, like, and you can dissect this down to very, you know, specific details, but the unfortunate part about that is that the reality of how those types of uh, trainings go is that they're haphazard at best. Uh, you know, you get a random corporal that's told, hey, you know, you need to leave PT today. When is it? It's in 10 minutes. You know, and that's the level of planning that goes into that. And that's for the people that actually do participate. So it's like it's it's just a really broken system. And we're trying to do our best to, if nothing else, just educate people uh, on that. But I think a lot of it realistically is the culture that surrounds the military just in a general sense um, and kind of the expectation of you should always be like this. 100% tough, no matter what, you know, doesn't matter if you're hurt or not. And you should be able to just pick up your, you know, your rucksack and go on a 15K ruck, or you should be able to run 10K. And that's just not what the 
reality of our situation is, particularly in the calf right now. And now, uh, now with the people yeah. that do walk in that are hurt, though, are you are you seeing a lot of buy-in with the work and the patience it takes to? rehab an injury because you know what i've seen is a kind of fast track to surgery and medication um i i can attest like it was five months to get my back ready to be half a year almost and it was awful at the beginning you know and it took a lot of you know pain tolerance it took a lot of patience it was frustrating it was you know two steps forward one step back but ultimately i healed my back stronger than it ever been um without any incisions without any fusions which for me was a, you know, a very powerful testimony. I've got two friends that are both, you know, God knows how many surgeries into their, their back injuries and they just get worse and worse and worse. So what are you seeing as far as the trust in strength conditioning to rehab an injury? You know, assuming it's not a leg break or something obvious that you do need surgery for. Yeah. So, uh, well, COVID times, it's really weird right now because I'm also getting a lot of referrals for people that should have come to us like, a year ago, right? Which is kind of a weird situation just with how everything panned out on that. So we're getting a lot of people right now that are in this kind of weird delayed process, whether they liked it or not, which is kind of unique probably to the uh, kind of standard expectation because there's no textbooks that tell us, you know, if the world shuts down for eight months, this is how you approach somebody's rehab right now. So we're, we're having, you know, kind of navigate that as we go. Um, but uh, yeah, I was going to say um, it, it's kind of hit and miss. Um, you know, I, we had to do numbers uh, just to present some of these things to the brigade uh, recently. And uh, one of the things that uh, we kind of broke down from a reconditioning perspective was uh, percentage of how they were discharged out of our program. And so uh, I think we were at 52 or 53% of all the persons that came into our program discharged uh, for what we call graduated or completed their program successfully. And that could be any array of things, individual programs, group programs, et cetera. Uh, but the next highest number um, was close to 20% of the people. So one in every five people that come through our program got discharged non-compliant. And so, um, I mean, to speak directly to what you're saying, one in every five people I see they come to our program, they don't buy in, and our general rule for non-compliance is different based on which programs they're involved in because certain ones have different layers of expectations as far as how often we're going to see them. But basically the way we define that is that we've had uh, either a set number of times that they've missed in a program where they drop below 80% of uh, the total program scheduled appointments or they've gone three consecutive contacts or attempted contacts from us with no response that's another reason for discharging someone non-compliant and then there's kind of layers to people that are just inconsistent but that's typically how we we look at that and so i think this educational piece that we're doing as we go, you know, from place to place on, on the base with the different units. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to also include in that is helping them understand, I think on the basis that what they perceive as being training is the stuff they're getting from other military persons on the units. And so they perceive that, well, that didn't help me before 
that's what led to my injury. So it's not going to help me now. And, uh, and we're having to try to help them kind of change their mindset in the, no, this isn't just some random guy that Googled exercise, you know, 10 minutes ago and found something out of the back of a magazine or whatever the, how people do that now, um, you know, to, to create a PT program. Um, I think that's a big problem we're having to, to work through right now. Cause as you said, you know, like it's real easy for people, particularly in COVID times, because they're being told they can stay home and not have to go to work to just mask the, the problem with pain medication and things like that. And then as I'm, you know, I'm speaking to the choir with you, cause I'm sure you've had this conversation with lots of people and the people that actually listen to your podcast. But once you go down that road, it's, it's hard to turn, you know, or steer off that track. Uh, particularly if we have to convince you that in order for you to get better, you're going to have to incur a certain bit or a certain amount of more pain uh, to get past the pain you're currently at now. So if you're, you know, at a four all the time, I might have to get you to a six to ultimately get you back to a two. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I can attest completely. Yeah. So, and, and that's one of those weird things, particularly for people that are, you know, like chronic pain medication people is that it's really hard to wrap your mind around the fact that, okay, this, this, and a lot of them know this isn't the best thing for me, but I can, you know, I can sleep at night. Um, you know, like I can do stuff with my family and not be completely debilitated by the pain that I'm experiencing, but to convince them that, Hey, we don't want you to have to do that. But unfortunately, in order to get past that, you're going to have to get back to the point where you may have a little bit of trouble sleeping for a week or two or whatever the case is. It is really hard for people to, to buy into that. And um, so I, I say this, I, I don't like to make assumptions when people sit in the chair in front of me when I do my intake, but I would say I have a pretty high percentage of being able to say this person's going to stick in the program or not based on the way they tend to communicate uh, with me right out of the gate. Yeah. Well, I mean, for my personal journey, um, you know, first there was the med surgery route that I totally was like, nah, we're not, we're not doing that. This is my body. And, you know, luckily I have to say credit to my last department. Their workman's comp people were pretty good. And once I put my foot down, they were with me the whole way because they could see I was trying to, trying to get back to work in the same shape or better than I, than I got hurt before. Um, but it took diligence. You know, it took, it was a full-time gig, and I think that's one of the problems I see in the first responder professions. I don't know if it's the same in the military, but we have a thing called light duty. Okay, well, you're not going to be riding a fire engine, but you can go file papers, you know, five days a week or drive around and deliver stuff because, like, that's, you know, really easy on the back. Um, and, you know, I think that philosophy is completely wrong. I think what we need to do is the same way as if your favorite sports star got hurt, they're not going to go work in a grocery store and then go to PT two, three times a week. They're going to be working on their body every day, you know, five, six, seven days a week until they can get back to where they need to be. And that's what I had to do. I was at PT, I think it was three or four times a week. I was at chiropractic four times a week, which is out of my own pocket because it wasn't covered because, you know, surgery, I could have all the surgery I fucking wanted, but I couldn't get them to pay for chiropractic. Um, you know, then there was extra things at home. There was, you know, foundation training, which is the thing I found. It was, you know, I mean, just, just all the different areas and then, then working my way back into, you know, moving strength condition, uh, you know, strength training, all that stuff. Um, and it was a full time practice. And I think, 
you know, one or two things. Firstly, there's that, oh, I'm just going to go and work because, you know, I don't want to use my time off. Well, you got hurt. This is the way you use your time off. But secondly, there's this facade that if you go back to work early, they're going to give you a medal and a giant hug, you know, and a, and a gold encrusted beer mug that they don't give a shit about when you come back. But what they do care about is if you get hurt two weeks later. So I see that in our profession where either there's a shortcut to surgery and or there's, a, there's this rush to get back to work. And that's when you see a lot of the re-injuries happening rather than looking at yourself as a full-time, you know, your job is rehab now. You're a tactical athlete. So you need to figure out what got you hurt in the first place, address the injury itself, but address the strengths, I mean, the, the weaknesses and the imbalances so that when you return, you fix not only the injury, but the cause of the injury as well. Yeah, and so I can speak uh, more specifically to the calf in this. So the, I would say the, the really strange dilemma that they find themselves in with that is that absolutely, there's definitely people that fit into exactly the, the, the compartment of like, this is what's happened, but I need to get back as soon as I can. Well, like there are persons like that. Um, I would say realistically, the people that I see fewer of that than there are people that are like, oh, I'm on reconditioning now, or I'm in, I have my, it's medical employment limitations. We also have what's referred to as a temporary category or permanent category for people as far as like their light duty. But that shit basically says no high impact, no, and that kind of laundry list of things. And it protects them from their units, subjecting them to things. But that's their get out of jail free card because invariably what happens is that they're like, oh, you're on, you know, Mel's go PT on your own, be back for work at this. And then they wander down to Tim's and get a coffee and then come back. Right. So it's uh, so it, it's kind of a weird thing, but the cash in the, in the Canadian armed forces, as far as like what you've mentioned, um, the Canadian armed forces is greatly undermanned and they have people left and right that are VR and volitional releases and medical releases all the time right now. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if it's a, if it's a morale issue. I don't know if it, I don't know what the, the reasoning is for behind it, but just murmurings that I've heard on the, the mill side, it seems like it's very prevalent right now, more so than it has been. And so the catch is that now, because they're so grossly understaffed, they don't really have a choice, but to still utilize them in some capacity because they just don't have butts in the seats. So it's like, we don't care. We know that you're hurt. We know that whatever, but we need you here right now. And, uh, you know, that's part of my conversation when we talk is like, hey, just so you know, like, that's great that they're doing their job. But if you're not giving them the time to get better, they still can't deploy. They don't meet the expectation. So your operational readiness is even lesser, even though. But, you know, like we have I've had guys come through my caseload. And they're like, yeah, I'm one of one on this base right now. I don't have anybody like I literally I'm the only person that can do my job. And I've heard that more than once, which is scary to me, <laughs> you know, like, but the, the reality of that situation, unfortunately, is that it's, it's almost the inverse of what you said. It's like, they don't care if I can even pass my physical fitness standard because there's just nobody else to do my job right now. So then there was this kind of like, you've been given the leniency to just kind of do whatever you want. And, and there is no real for them to get in better shape. And or there is, but in reality, not really on just on paper. And so that's a hard thing to come back from our perspective also is that if they don't see it as an inherent limitation to their daily 
lives outside of work, then there really is no motivation, right? What you did was you just said that I don't have to wake up at zero dark stupid and PT with everybody else. I can sleep in and then show up when it's time for work. And yeah, my back hurts a little bit, but I'll get physio treatment every once in a while. And we do come across that extreme as well. And so, yeah, it, it's a, uh, we get all bits of that spectrum, I think. Um, but yeah, we definitely, to kind of go back to yours, we definitely do have those individuals that are like, I have to get back. I have to do this. And um, I think it just kind of, for in the, from a military perspective, I think that's more derivative of their trade and the culture that uh, goes behind what it is specifically they do in the military than anything. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting, so the, op- the opposing force, you know, the, the parallels of what you're talking about now isn't so much even from the department, even though they may need those bodies, it's actually from Workman's Comp. Workman's Comp is, you know, this big insurance company. And um, again, kudos to my last place. They were awesome. Workman's Comp, you know, that, that organization that they had specifically were excellent. But I've had them on the other side as well. And I've heard horror stories where they're basically bullying responders to come back. Oh, you know, you should have been well by four weeks. You know, you need to come back kind of thing. And they're not ready. And, you know, they're not ready physically. They're not ready mentally. Um, and then they go back on and they break even worse. And then obviously it's, it's a, you know, a, a false economy as well because it ends up costing that insurance company a lot more when they completely break. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we have the same thing, but it's just, you know, from a drif- different stressor. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that's really important there is that, I have a lot of people that come through my caseload that probably physically are okay, but psychologically they're not, uh, you know, and, and it could be, it doesn't have to be And people, I think make the assumption because they're military that because they're injured, it's like, Oh, if they, you know, they, you know, go down in a helicopter crash. Like, no, they were playing volleyball, you know, like it, it. So, I mean, the vast majority of people I see anyway, they get hurt in garrison just doing sports and stuff like that. But the, the fear isn't necessarily the fear of death. It's that kind of kinesophobia element of I can't, I don't feel comfortable putting weight on that leg because I know what it feels like to hurt it now. Right. And uh, the, the unfortunate reality is that like with those persons, because they meet all the standards on paper, the way our programs exist right now is you have met the standard of universality of service. And the only real two things that, that constitute universality of service as per the Canadian military is that you can pass, you have a valid uh, force evaluation, which is their physical fitness standard and you're fit for weapons handling, which is the, the psychological handling and the, uh, the actual skill set of doing weapons handling. Right. It's like, as long as you meet those two prongs back to your unit. Right. So, and then, so we do get people that come to our caseload that I think the medical providers are kind of doing them a favor in that they come to us and we do kind of our initial assessment. And I'm like, physically, you seem relatively fine. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, just, you know, I'm really worried about that. And as soon as I hear that, that's usually what that is. And so I think the medical providers do a good job of identifying it when they see it. And we do get people like that into our caseload. But that that's a whole other bag of worms. Like that, that's a really difficult thing to navigate. Like I do get people periodically where physically they are effectively on paper, good to go, should be deployable and everything else. But for whatever reason, they have trauma associated with the injury or what have you. And they just can't wrap their mind around the idea of exerting themselves at the level that would be expected of them at a unit if they were to be partaking in whatever the regular training was. 
<clears throat> or uh, their unit PTs or what have you. So, uh, which seems like kind of a silly thing. Like I, I know that when people hear that, they're probably gonna be like, it's just working out. But like, if you've never experienced a really traumatic injury like that, it's a very difficult, um, and sometimes even the process of getting over the trauma is inherently traumatic itself because it's painful and things like that. So it's a, it's a kind of a unique thing to have to experience almost um, to be able to, to sympathize to it. Um, but it is, it is a common problem. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that I saw in myself and I wrote about in the book um, that caught me by surprise is, you know, you take a soldier, you take a firefighter, a cop, um, and, you know, someone who's especially has taken their strength conditioning seriously, you know, their body is their tool and they've been able to, you know, do decades worth of, of work. And, and then all of a sudden one day they break and they're lying in a bed and they can't even put their own damn socks on anymore. They can't pick up their, their infant child and they're taken away from their crew. So they're not around that tribe anymore. They're taken away from their purpose. They're not, you know, trying to make the world better every day. That emotional toll is huge. And then, like you said, I, I was even to this day, I'm still very, very, very deliberate on my deadlifts. And that wasn't how I hurt myself. I hurt, up, hurt myself picking up a patient. But, um, you know, it, that that does kind of um, kind of dig itself into your psyche as well. But the, I don't think people understand the mental toll of an injury from someone who is, you know, is is a sheepdog in their community, for lack of a better word, to all of a sudden becoming an invalid at the, you know, the snap of a finger. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say a couple things to that. One is that to, to kind of, I know I, I had quite a bit to say in regards to that, and it probably wasn't super uh, uh, direct to the point. I, I think the big takeaway from that, and you kind of touched on it indirectly, is that once you've had that injury uh, to a low back, for instance, what it does is it causes you to hesitate or pause, right? And and you will do that even if you're in a stressful situation, i.e. if you're having to pick up a patient or if you're under fire or things like that. If, if there's any doubt in your mind about your ability to perform, that hesitation, that, that could be life or death to be dramatic, but it could be, you know, depending on what we're looking at, you know, uh, and not only for you, for people around you. You know, like if if you're, you know, so apprehensive about your low back that when you get asked to pick up one side of a stretcher that you're slow to do it or whatever the case is, you know, it, you know, somebody is a first responder. You understand, again, not to be dramatic, but it can be a matter of seconds that make a difference. Right. So uh, if, if there's apprehension there or whatever the case is, like I it's definitely not ideal for those individuals. And that's really the big takeaway from like genuinely addressing those types of fears with those people as best we can, because it's not about, I, I don't care how much somebody can deadlift or anything like that in the gym for, for our, I mean, they're not barbell athletes. That's not how we measure their success. Right. So, I mean, yes, it's a great tool, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm not going to take a shit on, you know, like weightlifting, but uh, Kevin hates deadlifts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the, that's the banner. At the top, right? But, but it's more that idea that like I need those individuals to be able to do their job at their fullest. And that's a tool that we can use as a resource, but it's also, I can use it as a diagnostic tool to triage whether or not we're, we're where we need to be. Um, and particularly if it's something that's fear-based for that individual. Um, so yeah, that, that was something I wanted to kind of touch on uh, is that like, that's, that's really the, 
the takeaway from why that's so important, um, even if it is something like an injury from playing softball with your buddies. Like if, if you're afraid that that's going to happen, that will ultimately cause you to hesitate in moments where you may need to be able to call on that skill set in some capacity. Um, yeah, it's just it for those people. Um, it, it's just one of the, it goes back to the avoidance and resilience thing. Like that's the unfortunate part to get them to buy in is like, they're afraid of it. And like any other, whether it's, you know, if it's trauma from your childhood or whatever, it's like, we got, we got to tear the seams and feel the hurt of it a little bit to actually make our way through it. And from a physical standpoint, sometimes that means that we're going to have to do some exercises that aren't super comfortable to help them understand that they can trust those ranges or their ability to do X. Right. So it's just, uh, yeah, it is pretty complex. So the first question I have, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. That's a good question. So this is a book, um, I've given to quite a few buddies. A lot of my friends that have fought, uh, or that were fighters, what a surprise. A lot of guys that punch people in the face for money have had trauma in their life. Um, this is a book by Craig Rochelle. Um, Craig Rochelle, I, when I started actually going to church for me, instead of because my mom told me I had to be there, I couldn't go out with my friends. <laughs> um, I started going to Life Church in Oklahoma City. It was literally, I could walk to it. So it made it super convenient. Craig Rochelle, man, I, this guy is on fire. He writes all kinds of books and stuff like that. I loved his energy. He's, uh, anyway, uh, he wrote this book. It's called hope in the dark. So the, the concept behind this, it goes through the book of Habakkuk in the Bible. It's a, it's a really quick read. Like, I don't know if you can see it. It's pretty big print. It, and, uh, it's, I can't remember how many pages it is. It's less than 200 pages. It's a quick read. Um, for people that are struggling with the idea of faith, or if they have at least a, a background in faith, they'll probably like it if they're struggling. I don't know if people that don't really have a faith base would like it because the concept behind it is, uh, or the, I guess you, I can just read the subtext right below it. Believing in God is good when life is not. And so the, the, the illustration, they actually did a whole lesson over it, but the illustration was, you know, you go through life is good, life is good, life is bad, life is bad, life is bad. You expect it to get better, and then it just keeps getting worse. Now what, right? Like, and it's the the book of Habakkuk is the idea of an individual that's struggling with the existence of God, even though everything is going wrong. And uh, this was a book that was crucial in my timeline for it to land when it did. And as a result of it, I think I've actually purchased this probably three or four different times, aside from the one that I own for other people and just sent it to them. Um, the little bit of feedback I've gotten from the people that actually took the time to read it, great. I don't know if the other people even read it, but I felt like it was my due diligence to send it to them. So if there's anyone out there that's struggling with kind of the stuff that I talked about today, as far as like purpose and direction and hope and all those things that kind of come as a result of things of really struggling with guilt and shame. This book was top tier for that. So 
that would be my personal recommendation for that. I got lots of other books that have nothing to do with anything that would be of any value to the people in the podcast, but I'll save those for a different conversation. Beautiful. We'll do that next time then. But no, I've never had that one uh, mentioned before, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the next question is, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? That's a longer list. <laughs> uh, man, I, I, I love war movies. I love all that stuff. You will never get me more engaged to watch a movie than watching comedies. Um, I love to de-stress with movies. I love to have something that brings me to my knees with laughter. There is a slew of movies that I rewatch over and over again to the point where my, my wife just leaves the room at this point. Um, I would say, oh man, I could watch Tropic Thunder until I'm blue in the face. Um, that one is a win every time. Um, I weirdly like the movie Grown Ups. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that one's kind of a strange one. Uh, but I think I just like watching the friend dynamic there. Uh, it's very reminiscent of kind of the, the constant like back and forth between friends that it's like dealing with my buddies. Um, yeah, I mean, I like all the kind of classic fighting movies and stuff like that, too. I grew up watching anything that had John claude Van Damme in it. I could probably recite to you. So... That, that was the man when I was growing up. I know Chuck Norris is from Oklahoma and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> JCVD was at, I was team JCVD back in the day. So Yeah. No, I I, uh, I watched all of them as well. You know, Bloodsport, yeah. Kickboxer, and Hard Target, you name it. But Chuck Norris would be an amazing guest, I think. I don't know how the hell I'm going to get him, but he'd be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it probably – the. The strength of his voice might break your speakers. Yeah, I probably so, have have no downloads. He just reset everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the next question then is: There a person you already you know sent me one a few months ago? So, is there another person you'd recommend to come on the podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? So I've actually already said his name in this podcast, but uh, if I said anybody, it would be Brandon. Uh, my friend Brandon Bowen. Uh, the reason being is that he has a unique reach into kind of two different levels that might be of interest to you. Um, he's so I don't I can't give you. Well, if you interviewed him, he'd probably tell you. I can't give you <laughs> a real detailed list of his uh, military career, but he was enlisted first and then he commissioned. I do know that he was on the medical side in the Air Force. Um, as I mentioned, he's either a lieutenant colonel or he's pinning on colonel soon. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think he was just out with some of the flooding that was happening with Henry in Tennessee and, and some of those areas, helping with some of that stuff. Um, so he's done that. But then the other side is that I don't know what his actual title was, but he was, to my understanding, the head of managing all trauma systems in the state of Oklahoma for the health department at one point as oh, his wow. civilian, because he was in a reserve status. So he was the, I think the way his title worked out, or I'm sorry, his area of responsibility worked out was that he was overseeing all of EMS, particularly um, 
on the side for like paramedic and medics and they're kind of standard operating procedures on their side of things. And then he's also, uh, he was the first person that introduced me to books like the E-Myth and things like that because he also adjunct taught as a professor, small business at one of the universities in Oklahoma. Okay, beautiful. Sounds like an amazing man. Yeah, he's got a lot of backgrounds and I feel like, so his family dynamic, and I won't ruin any of his story or spill any of his beans on that, his family dynamic, not quite so boring as mine. <laughs> All yeah, right. so he, when it comes to that side of the story, depending on what degree he would be willing to share, I don't know. But I do know that uh, his upbringing was quite a bit different than mine. Could be much more different than mine than it is. Right. I'm intrigued. So yeah, I'd love to, to get him on if we're able to make that work. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find your IG handle, for example, um, what do you do to decompress? To decompress, uh, man, that's a that's such a nerdy quest. I I am such a gamer kid, uh, man. I uh, I get on uh, Call of Duty with my buddies that I maintained over the years. Most of them are Marines and. We halfway play Call of Duty. I'll, I'll say it from a ratio perspective. We two to one shit talk each other to play in Call of Duty. Uh, but it's also where we actually have like legitimate conversations with each other because we're all in different geographical locations. So it's a lot cheaper than a phone bill. Um, so that's my general decompress. But aside from that, um, my wife and I are uh, will binge watch Netflix, and uh, the one thing that we agree on, cooking shows. What's your favorite cooking shows? Mine? I love watching Gordon Ramsay because that dude's energy is off the <laughs> chart. So anything that has him in it, I absolutely get wrapped up into. So all like we're watching MasterChef right now, right? Um, but hers is anything baking. Um, and I think the one that we both like the most is Nailed It, which is actually where they screw up. That's the most magical show on Netflix. I mean, I will, I'll argue that till I'm blue in the face. <laughs> Watch normal people try to recreate these elaborate cakes and just completely and utterly destroy what the original intent was with their own like artistic rendition is what I'm going to refer to it as what they interpreted what they saw as to what it actually turns into that's that's primetime television (laughs) have you seen the uh, great British baking show yes yeah I don't know what it is we we binge that for a little bit I mean it's such a mundane show it's a bunch of British people during COVID so it was in a tent baking outside but I got sucked into that for, for a while. That was our kind of wind down TV every night was watching a bunch of British people bake cakes. I don't know why. I'm usually way more kind of high energy. But yeah, it was, I think there was some therapeutic element, I think, because you just couldn't, didn't have to think at all. Steven, Steven's dropped his tray. Oh no. <laughs> you know, that was the, the level of excitement. <laughs> and I'll say I love the dramatic elements that they do in cooking shows. Uh, my classic favorites are the, well, one, the music, right? Super dramatic. But I love the intent behind the 
you know, telling somebody that they've done well, but making it appear as though they did terribly. Like that part of it, the comedic value in that is off the charts, but it's super serious at the same time. So it's, it's one of these weird, like it's somebody's life hanging in the balance, right? And I find myself giggling at it, which is super perverse, but like there's somebody sitting here and they're like, this is the worst dish I've ever had since I've been here when it comes to cooking blank. And you just see this person's face drop and they're like, because it's the best. And they do this weird, like reversal <laughs> thing. And it's sad. And it's, I, I just love that, like that part of it. It's so predictable in how they actually deliver it, but it just sucks me in every time because there's this, like emotional pull in it and it's comedic and it's this you know, weird, I don't know why I'm so enthralled with it. I sound like a psychopath talking about it, but <laughs> like, it's just, I don't know why I love those moments, but they just crack me up to no end. And yeah, they're just really, that is the hook, line and sinker for me watching those shows. It's just that brief interaction that Gordon has right at the end where it's like, you know, so-and-so and they start walking forward. And he's like, get back in line, you know, like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I absolutely love those shows and I feel like such a nerd admitting that to anyone, but uh, that's the way it goes, I guess. There's no secrets on the Behind the Shore podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Behind definitely is not saved here. It's, it's known to everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, then for people listening that are intrigued, and we've got so much more that we'll talk about in the next one when it comes to the work you do with, um, you know, like I said, preparing the tactical population for duty, helping them recover from injuries. Um, so, all the things that we talked about today, I'm sure some people are going to be intrigued. Where are the best places online to find you? Yeah, so I think the only the only profile that I actually have that's to public, I don't even know what my handle is. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, there it is. So my, I was like, that's kind of sad. I feel like I should know that. Um, is Malahi SC. So it's my last name. So it's uh, M-A-L-A-H-Y-S-C, always one word. That's my Instagram. That's really the only one that I have any relative amount of activity on. My Facebook is more to keep up with friends from home and stuff like that. I don't really do much on there. Um, so yeah, that's uh, where you can find me if you're going to find me on social media. Um, my activity on there has been pretty low just because I've been so busy recently, but i Talking about decompressing, I'll share memes with my buddies all day long. So if you message me on there, I'll probably see it. So, yeah, if, if anybody has any questions or anything like that, I have no problems with people contacting me on there. Um, I'll do my best to respond if I see it. Beautiful. Well, Kevin, I just want to say thank you, but there's so much value, I think, like I said, in in you know your early life on the perspective of um, young athletes, weight cutting, you know TBIs. So we we obviously have hit a lot of topics that are kind of outside the the nucleus. So I just want to say thank you, thank you for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, speaking of TBIs, I got a judo class. I got to go meet up with my brother-in-law to take him through. So hopefully we can keep everything in line and uh, and I'll be comprehensive uh, or to be able to speak well with you. Uh, the next time I come in, because this is like my second judo class that I've had since COVID. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll see what happens with this one, but hopefully I'll be able to remember this conversation next time. <laughs>